it was a card table spaceship, and we were really going to go to space in it. I know it, it does sort of sound like sort of a childhood. Just just to, just to play spaceship, you would use the card table. Um, the one I remember from my youth was one probably from the 60s or 70s, probably from the time when uh, the card games like Bridge were very popular or Pinochle, the four-handed card games where you would set up this table, a temporary table that you, that you could you could fold the legs down and, uh, you know, store it in a closet or something. And I'm trying to remember where this one was, but I know we had it growing up. And again, it was just small. It was maybe three feet or three or four feet across a square. And, uh, yeah, the legs folded down on each side. And, uh, you know, we would use it for various, <laughs> various purposes, you know, including playing cards. But as a kid's plaything, you could uh, not really necessarily sit on top of it. I don't think that would have been necessary. I don't think that was the, the thing. But, for example, you could hold it, you, you could turn it upside down. So the four legs are, are up. You can just sort of sit on the underside of the table if you place it upside down. And then that could be kind of like a spaceship. Or in that configuration, or turning it right side up and putting a some sort of sheet or tablecloth over it, you know, it could become kind of like an interior space, like a space. You could imagine it being a spaceship. But in this case, it, it was somehow an actual spaceship, and we were going to go to space in it for real. The three of us sitting on top of this card table. I guess there were little rockets at the end of each table leg. And we were really going to go. It was amazing. And we were, I think we were in some kind of simulator to prepare ourselves. We hadn't gone yet, but everyone was getting ready to go into space. We, and uh, in the simulator, we were going to this area of the sky where there was a number of these blue stars uh, just shining in the sky. <coughs> and I think it did represent the planet like Neptune and 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 its uh, and its moons and stuff but they were a beautiful like a light blue kind of almost an aquamarine blue color the stars shining and this guy was asking us do you even know how to how to fly a spaceship and i was like well you know i i understand we need a, enough fuel left over to come back you know like i know we we need to pr- look at the fuel gauge and make sure you know cuz i know once you're in space and you get to a certain direction and a certain speed you know you really don't slow down in space i suppose what they say there are some particles in space there would be a slight amount of friction but not enough to really matter so that once we got up to neptune or wherever we were going we would uh, (coughs) need to be able to turn around and come back and have enough fuel left over to you know uh, accelerate in the other direction and point ourselves back to earth and then do small adjustments and yeah it was me and um these two other guys it kind of reminded me of uh, in real life you know the three weasels me peter and brian but in this case they were sort of my two friends that i met on this reality show and uh, it was a really popular reality show that had been going for like decades and there were you know hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people who had been contestants on the show Something like, think like The Amazing Race or Survivor, something like that. Um, a show that had just been going on and on for such a long time. It, I'm trying to remember what, but it also sort of hinted at being like, you know, one of those dating elimination shows, The Bachelor, Bachelorette, stuff like that. It was some kind of show, but it was really, really popular. Now, we met, I had been on the show um, 
probably like 15 or 20 years earlier, you know, and didn't get very far. was one of the first eliminated. But I met these two other guys, and they became my longtime friends. So this, we were in – so we – in that simulator, we were preparing for our trip into space on the car table spaceship. And uh, then we went – when we went out, it was this – it was like this area. It was like a building – uh, it was in London, but it was kind of like in the future, which, you know, I mean, I know recently I've been watching that TV show, The Peripheral, which takes London in the future as one of the settings. That was probably the inspiration for it. But, um, yeah, there were these uh, multiple levels, right? Um, and it was this reunion. It was like whatever, the 20th or 30th reunion of this reality show, maybe the 25th reunion. And they invited all the contestants back to be on the show, right? And that's why we were there. And then the whole thing of going into space was part of it. There was some sort of sense maybe that the Earth was dying or there was going to be some sort of apocalypse or end of the world. You had to go into space to escape. It's something like that, but that may have been fictional or a premise or something. But anyway, uh, this, uh, this space, so we were like, you know, not at the top level, but we were up in the building. And there were hallways and corridors. It really kind of felt like a subway station or a train station or something. There were just a bunch of... Um, like uh, posters or, or ads along the wall, which showed each one showed uh, a person sort of in profile facing to the left, and then like a like a humanoid animal, like an anthropomorphic animal, like a furry or something facing to the right. And it was uh, they, these were ads for um, human AI love programs. I guess you know, sort of like you, you would you would sort of <coughs> have as your partner. Uh, a, a, a virtual furry animal person. So I guess it was sort of for furries or something. I don't know. Anyway, so one of my friends, my two friends, um, he started freaking out, right? He was like, he's, and he's like, look, all the animals in those posters are coming to life and they're moving. Now, meanwhile, I, I, I mean, they weren't video. They were just printed, but the animals just started moving, you know, that were facing to the right in profile. And I, <coughs> I looked down and I thought I saw one move a little bit. But he was completely freaking out. It's like, the animals are moving, man. The animals are moving. <coughs> so then one guy came up who was like a producer, kind of one of the bosses. He's like, hey, guys, listen, you know, I, this, is, this situation is getting worse and worse. Reality is breaking down. That's the reason we have to leave, you know. So it could cause these kind of hallucinations or things moving. So I think it was something like we, we, we were sort of <coughs> escaping the world because things were falling up. The, the world was breaking down or something. He's like, come up. Come up to the uh, the next level because I think the closer you are, because it's like it relates to uh, gra- <coughs> gravity. Like the closer you are, the closer you are to the ground, the worse this effect will be of hallucinations and stuff. So come up one level, you know. So we went up one level, and then right there were like hundreds of people, if not thousands, sort sort of gathered there. <coughs> but there was yet an additional level, a top level, <coughs> and it, there was a sign there that said reserved for only like the the winners of each season the top contestants and meanwhile we were like eliminated immediately and but there was no one guarding it so we the three of us just went up the stairs and we're like listen unless someone tells us not to we're going up they're telling us that reality is breaking down further down let's go all the way up so we went up there and there's a bunch of people standing around who were like the winners of the shows and stuff and no one was really noticing us but i was sort of joking to my friends i was like Admitting that I, you know, I wasn't as attractive as all the people there. And I'm saying, I was like, I may not have the looks, but I make up for it in personality. And I was sort of like flourishing and moving around. They're like, oh, that is for sure, Frank. That's for sure. 
you know, and and the one guy who reminded me of my, my friend Brian, I like, you know, I may not, I'm, I may not look like much, but I make up for it with my personality. And and the other guy says, of course, why else would you be here in the elite area, right? Um, so this was like a, a it was almost, there was like a ba- the windows looking out at at London there, and we were trying to get a good vantage point. You could see this other building over there. It was like kind of it was weird. There was <coughs> another building. I could remember the architecture and stuff, and there was something sort of like a hatch would open up to, up on the building, and something would come out. Almost like imagine like a cuckoo clock, but something would come out and then go down. It was really very specific and weird, and um, you know, uh, and we were yeah, we were just all waiting for like to to escape or go to space, or we were expecting whatever to happen that we were going to leave that this world and um we heard someone talking about these posters that were moving i'm like oh yeah human ai love and i said what else will there be to do? i was looking out the windows what else will there be to do once uh the machine takes over and we have don't have to do any work it'll only it'll be all i was sort of implying it'll all just be sort of ai sex simulations in the future and, I, and the my friends were like, "Ah, oh, come on, Frank! Don't don't be don't be like that. It's not going to be like that." Um, and like, didn't you ever hear of the machine? And I started singing, "Welcome, my son. Welcome to the machine." The the Pink Floyd song. <laughs> How have you been? It's all right. We know where you've been. Right. Welcome to the machine. You've been in a big sun, played a mean guitar, so welcome to the machine. (laughs) And then I woke up. Yes, that was my dream this morning. Oh, wow. Wow, that was some dream. It's good you don't have to pay royalties to the music and the dreams because you can't get you, you you can't get those Pink Floyd royalties. They're like impossible to get. But in the dreams, they send another dimension. You don't need to. Uh, anyway, what a dream! Wow, there was so much going on there. It was three thirty a.m. I woke up and I got up. I went to the bathroom and I was so like. I, I, I ran and got my phone, and I wrote down this dream, which is good, because I would have forgotten it otherwise. Um, so I jotted down these notes furiously uh, for the dream, and uh, then tried to go back to bed, and I was laying there. It was like 3.30, 3.40 a.m., and, uh, <coughs> you know, I was like, I'm just wide awake. What am I going to do? And uh, I started having, like, like almost like a vision, but I was awake. Now, meanwhile, this is... Uh, Today's November 1st, 2022. Last night was Halloween. We had a lot of trick-or-treaters, actually. But, you know, isn't that supposed to be the... That night is supposed to be the night when the veil between the worlds is the, the weakest, right? Something like that. So, in my vision, someone was saying, hey, hey, Frank, look over there, look over there. Sort of psychically, just direct your psychic vision over there. And I'm like, I don't think I should. Again, this, this was, I was awake, but these were idle thoughts, sort of half awake, half asleep. And uh, I kind of, it's hard to describe, but I mean, directed my psychic vision over. And I saw rectangular grids. Uh, they're like, no, a little further, a little further. And I looked over and I saw this incredible city. 
which may have been the city from the dream. It, it was like New York City, but just far grander and far larger and more ancient and just absolutely amazing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, because it's Halloween night or whatever, All Saints Day, whatever. The veil is particularly thin and you can see through into that city. Yeah, it was... Uh, and I, I mean, I, I was getting some visions of that city, but I had really kind of thought about it before. There was a time when I think it was back around <coughs> I'm trying to think the time period, probably around yeah, like 2013, 2014, that time period. I remember being at work at that financial marketing agency I worked at with that guy Marcus, who I've talked about on the show, talking about like this idea of the upper city that there's New York City, which is itself only like a, a, um, a reflection or a, um, uh, a pale reflection of, that, of a much grander, more ancient city that is actually located in the same space, but in the next dimension over. And I called it the upper city. And I don't think he really knew what I was talking about. I don't even know if I knew, if I knew what I was talking about, but that there was this far grander, bigger city um, next door. Right. So I, it almost feels like I had a vision of that city last night, but it was really very uh, it felt like almost very just images, still images. I got the sense of the scale of the place, but not any sense of the feel of the place. It almost like I was looking at a series of old photographs of the place or something. The upper city, <laughs> the other version of New York City. <clears throat> You know, I mean, I mean, and of course, it could just be being half awake, half asleep. But anyway, there's something about it felt a little bit more whatever. But I was not really very moved by the the vision. It's just I saw it. You know, I saw a, a little bit of it, and I was trying to. And then I wound up just thinking about um, tonight. In fact, I'm going down to town hall, and we're going to have there's going to be a, a meeting, the board of commissioners, and talking about this new project they're building behind my house. And this is our opportunity to speak on it. And I was just going to talk about the, uh, you know, like if they're going to put a fence up and if they're going to plant some trees. But if, you know, the, our main concern is there's a bunch of apartments looking down into our yard, things like that. So I started just idly thinking about that. And it was almost like the other pers- the, the other entities that were part of this little vision were like, why are you thinking about that? Like you have this one opportunity to look at this other city psychically. But you're thinking about, like, what you're going to say at this Board of Commissioners meeting. It feels very, like, a waste of time. And, in fact, a little bit later, I did kind of reach out again and, and with my mind, and I just – it was blocked then, you know. So it was like – it was like almost like the, the veil was, like, tissue thin just for a few minutes to this other city. And <clears> – <throat> You know, the idea is that if, if we think of it as a, a four-dimensional construct, right, that, uh, um, right, we th- you know, thinking about the f- fourth dimension, like what we're living in is a, a volume, a three-dimensional volume. So the idea is that there can be another three-dimensional volume right next door to us. Imagine just a stack of paper. Each one is a two-dimensional universe, right? So you could stack worlds like that, and there'd be... For each piece of paper and a stack of paper, there's one above it and one below it, right? 
So the idea is that if there's these other worlds, there could be one hyper above us and one hyper below us, considering a four-dimensional setup. But what about five-dimensional? We can understand that by comparing a one-dimensional world to <coughs> a three-dimensional world, like two dimensions up. So imagine line worlds. Each world is just a, a line, right? So uh, lines uh, that are parallel to one another in a plane, right? Each one of those would have another world to the left and to the right, right? But when you add the third dimension, right, there's other worlds in other directions too near you. <coughs> I wonder if it would just be one, two, three, four, and then at the angles five, six, seven, would there be eight other worlds in a fifth dimensional? And then so on and so on. <coughs> right? How, m how many ways can you stack three-dimensional volumes? In six-dimensional space, obviously, there'd be even more. So... Anyway, it all sounds very outlandish, and I understand that, but it has been a strong working theory of mine that there are other three-dimensional worlds that we could go to that are stacked very close to this one. And it's not, if you could see it for what it was, it's not magic, mystical, or anything. It's just aspects of the natural world that we just can't really grasp or understand or get at, right? But that there are portals which are simply um, ramps that uh, will shunt you over, f f you know, four-dimensionally, four-dimensionally, five-dimensionally, or six-dimensionally, or whatever, over to another volume. So it's not, uh, you know, magical shimmering gateways as we see it, teleportation gateways. It's literally some sort of a tunnel or a corridor or a shaft or whatever that will, you know, allow you to move you in a way you can't normally move. Like you can't normally move yourself in a four-dimensional direction, right? But if there's a ramp, you could move yourself in your normal 3D way and you'd wind up moving four-dimensionally. This is all theoretical. I don't think we have any proof for it, but, but all of this talk of the hollow earth, for example, that you know, Admiral Byrd went to the North Pole or the South Pole and found these lush jungles and stuff, and people thinking very three-dimensionally think he must have gone inside the earth to another world inside, because where else could it be, right? Well, the idea is that if there's these additional <coughs> with volumetric worlds can be stacked right there could be so much so close that we could literally go to by stepping through through a door walking down a corridor and in theory those things could exist and in new york city that could exist i've always had i had s several dreams about the elevators at grand central some of them going into another world and you think grand central would be a good place to put it <laughs> a gateway between worlds for those that had the permission. The idea is that there's some sort of rule or, or law that we here in this world are not allowed to, not only are we not allowed to go there, we're not allowed to know about it. Which, uh, you know, because obviously no one seems to have gone there. There's been stories of people going to places like that, but it, it, it could all be a lot of hogwash, actually. A lot, it, it, you know what? It could all be a lot of mumbo jumbo, as Han Solo says. You know what I mean? Anyway, anyway, I had another mystery, which was very weird. Um, well, I wouldn't say that 
that what I just described was a mystery. It was just simply idle thoughts, half awake, half asleep. It doesn't, there's no mystery to that really. Just a slight suggestion that maybe there's some <coughs> uh, validity behind it, but it's certainly not ascertainable from this vantage point. Anyway, <coughs> on uh, Sunday, today's Tuesday, I went over to my uh, to visit my father and my brother down at my father's house, the house I grew up in, and the house shown uh, extensively in the complete polarized worlds, right? So uh, we wound up watching it. My brother had a, pro- a video projector in his laptop because uh, he has the NFL Sunday ticket from DirecTV. So he's able to show my father and my brother able to watch football games they wouldn't normally be able to get on the local New York channels, New York, New Jersey channels. Um, so he had that set up. So we started watching. We watched about the first hour of the complete polarized worlds. And it was great because we were looking at little details of the house and the porch. Um, the uh, Right on the porch in the video, there was this thermometer, but it looked kind of like a clock and there were like birds on it and stuff. Um, and I could have sworn I saw it. So this video is from 85. I could have sworn I saw it fairly recently at their house. And in fact, I did find it in the basement. And then there was a chair, a black chair that you can see in the video as well, with some sort of little symbol on it from some kind of college. My father said he remembered buying that somewhere. He bought a chair, a black wooden chair. And I found that as well, but it was so stacked and covered with stuff I couldn't see that logo or that insignia Um, but it was kind of cool going into the basement and that it was so extensively filmed in that uh, 85 video and just sort of seeing what was still there and what was gone the encyclopedias of course Britannica was still there but it was yeah it was very cool to watch and of course I'm in it my brother's in it and there's a lot to talk about so it was very fun to watch it Obviously, the whole video is eight hours long, so we just we didn't watch all of it. We just watched. I said like the first hour was the most important for what we were <coughs> uh, just looking at the conceptual videos, everything else. It was uh, it was very cool. So anyway, um, when, when it came time to leave, I figured you know when I'm I'm there, I'm by myself, just driving my car. You know, my wife is home, just taking it easy because we had a few very active days. We had a uh, game night on on Saturday night, and you know, so I had to cl- we had to clean up the whole house and everything. So Sunday was kind of a resting day. So I figured, you know, hey, I can go somewhere after I leave here. You know, sometimes I like to drive down Route 22, go home that way, reminisce about the Route 22. <coughs> Always a fun road to drive down. Um, you know, I could go to a mall. There's a few times I've gone down to the uh, Menlo or Woodbridge malls. You know, there's a Dave and Buster's at, at Menlo. I, I, sorry, at Woodbridge. There's also like a weird, like, <laughs> there's an aquarium at Woodbridge now, too. You know, one of those, the, the whole mall aquarium phenomenon. <coughs> no. Something like a phenomenon. <laughs> yes. Crappy little aquariums in malls. That's a good one. Um, you know, I didn't want to just go straight home. But... And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but as I was, I'm like, let me just pull out, I, I pull out of the driveway and go up the street and just figure out where I'm going. I just want to do something. And then I, I realized, you know what? I there's a uh, there's a, a road or a way that I haven't gone in a long time. Uh, the way down to 
uh, Drew University, Madison, New Jersey, right? And you can go that way down through Chatham and all the way to the, um, the mall there, the Short Hills Mall. So, actually, the way I go from where I currently live to my father's house is I usually take 287. Uh, these are the New Jersey highways. Now, per perhaps 78 to the parkway is a bit faster, but I much prefer 287, which I take to 46 and then 3 to go home. But when I went to college at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, I would drive up <coughs> a 287, passing that rest area, which was you can see extensively in the complete Weird University, uh, which is now a rest area only for trucks. Cars are not allowed there. Only truckers can go there. Um, but then you would turn, you would exit 287 at Route 24. Route 24 was the road, and if you exited and you turned left, you'd wind up in Morristown. And if you turned right, you would get to First Convent Station with that other college there. What was that college? <coughs> I forget. Well, there was Fairly Dickinson somewhere around there, and then there was this girls' college. But you go through conversation, then eventually you get, you, you get to Drew University and then downtown Madison. So that area was so important to me. It was a very formative time of my life, going to Drew University from 85 to 87. Then I transferred to NYU. And there was also, I figured, you know, why don't I just drive down that? Now, what happened was it, it went from being Route 24. Uh, then they, they built this new road, and they called that Road 24. So this road became 124, and that was a little rule of thumb on my mind. I knew that it was no longer 24. It was 124. They had demoted it as a road, right? That was a higher number. I think in this case, higher is not better for, for highways, right? Like you have 95, and then like the offshoot roads are like 295, you know, 495. <coughs> They're like the, the offshoots. Anyway, so I'm like, yeah, it's Route 124. You exit 287. I can go down. I could just drive past Drew University. And then there's a bookstore at, in uh, Madison called uh, Chatham Booksellers. Even though <laughs> they're in Madison, and the next town over is Chatham. They're called Chatham Books. I'm like, maybe I'll go there. And maybe I could go all the way through Chatham and then all the way to Short Hills Mall. Or I could just turn around and go back on 287. Because I didn't really feel like spending a huge amount of time on this sidetrack. I just wanted to do something a little, a little flourish, a little something fun on my way home. You see what I'm saying? So... I uh, drove the normal way up through 287, and then I saw the exit to 124, and I'm like, okay. And I hadn't done this in such a long time. I take the exit, and I get to this light, and it says, and I could swear it, it said 124, and then it was to the left and right. I'm like, oh, this sign is showing me that we are now intersecting with 124, and you can turn left or right at 124, right? <coughs> so as I'm imagining it, 124 crosses the the 287, so if you're looking at it on a map, to the left or the west is Morristown, and then to the right is, is Madison, right? So I see this sign. It has these arrows pointing both ways, 124. I'm like, okay, obviously I'm going to go right because I want to you know, go over to Drew, and I start driving down the road. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this looks kind of familiar. Looking at the streets, I'm like, wow, I haven't been here in a long time. I'm, you know, I, uh, it looks kind of familiar, but kind of not. Like, I... And as I kept going, I started getting this sense 
<coughs> like, this is not the right road. What the hell happened? You know? <coughs> and as it, as it went on, I realized I had somehow gotten on the wrong road. I have no idea how this happened. So it got to a point where, and I could see on my dashboard, it, it shows, you know, south, north. It was like a compass on there. Um, I got to a place he had to turn left or right. And I'm like, okay, I'll turn left. And, uh, <coughs> and I kept going. I got to some sort of shopping plaza. I'm like, oh, this must be, this must be 124. So I'm like, I'll turn left, right? Then I, I think I passed by Madison now because I think there were some signs that said I was in Chatham. But I saw the road I was on wasn't 124. It was, it was called Shunpike. Shunpike Road. I love that word, Shunpike. <coughs> a Shunpike is a road for people that are trying to avoid toll roads. A Shunpike. I'm like, I must be getting close to where I want to go. And it, kept, it, it keeps going through like this farmland and all these rich areas with giant mansions and stuff. And finally, it gets to another turn. So I'm like, all right, I'll turn right. At this point, I'm like, listen, <coughs> there was no place to pull over. Right. When I saw that strip mall, I'm like, I could just pull in and look at my phone to see where I am. But I, I, I went to turn left and you could and then it went immediately back to an area that had no businesses, nothing. You know where you can pull over. So I, then I got to this thing and I and I turned right. I'm like, listen, I'm going. I don't know what the hell's going on here. I'm getting lost, but it doesn't really matter. I know I, I can't go that far without hitting into some kind of road. So I keep going and I realize I'm on this. I'm on the same road I drove in on. I'm like, I made. How could I be back? I I didn't turn around. I'm back on the same road I turned in on. I'm like, wait, this is something weird going on here because you know. As some kind of a background to this, you know, my years at Drew University were marked by a strange event that I've described on the show here. I, I think it's still unanswered as to what happened, but, I, you know, basically I, I feel like I sort of got drawn into some sort of supernatural battle that was going on at the college and had some sort of weird energetic relationship with the place. Um, you know, and if you've heard me talking about this over the years, I know it's a topic that it must strike people as being rather odd. I called it like the psychic wars and, uh, you know, and I, and I do think, I think within the past year I did uh, talk about it quite a bit and I think it could have been, I would love, I mean, yes, maybe there's real psychicness involved, but I think what I'll admit is that, right, at the very least strange way of exploring it, it's kind of a mass hysteria because it was me and a few other people, we thought we were engaged in the psychic war and it could just be mass hysteria, like people sort of suggesting to other people that, oh, maybe there's uh, demonic entities that you're fighting, this and that. And for someone with a very vivid imagination, et cetera, et cetera, it could really affect you, right? I experienced something there, but, um, you know, again, I, that is the simplest explanation that it was just sort of weird mass hysteria. Uh, that, that sounds a bit extreme, but just the power of suggestion, you know, and a vivid imagination. Uh, and then and then I think at the next level, and this is something that people don't really acknowledge, and I, I think this is a topic I brought up to, to the sorcerers when I interviewed them out in uh, New Mexico, right? Most people think there's no such thing as a supernatural, there's no such thing as psychic phenomena or supernatural entities or anything like that, right? So let's say there is, that there really are people who are psychic and, right, and can and can sort of communicate mind to mind, right? And you know, they the sense is that you can reach out with your mind and sense things, like I described about that city. 
Well, then we have to introduce the concept that a psychic that's more powerful than you could reach out to your mind and make you think you're experiencing things whereas it is a legitimate psychic experience, the content of what you're perceiving is being provided by the other person and could be completely fictitious. This is, I think, um, a, an aspect of psychic phenomena that, that is sort of um, under-theorized, okay? Which is, right, to even begin to have psychic visions... Most people will tell you, oh, you're nuts, you know, you're not experiencing it, it's all in your imagination. But let's say it, it, it's more than your imagination. You're perceiving something, but then when we get to that level, you're, you, you're lacking, in my opinion, any uh, mechanism to uh, additionally um, verify that what you're perceiving has any truth to it. Because, again, if there's someone more pow- powerful than you, uh, a more powerful psychic than you could easily... Uh, provide illusory psychic perceptions and hence it's a true psychic experience but any of the specifics of what you're experiencing could be completely arbitrary and made up by the the more powerful psychic and this could be a completely human phenomenon there's no gods, angels, demons, nothing it's just, it's an aspect of humanity that we don't understand people are able to you know, contact other people's minds and, and you know insert images and stuff and, and perceptions that are not valid. And when I was talking to the sorcerers about that, I, I said, and you can go back to listen to that. I'm not going to get into that topic, but I said, I understand you're experiencing all of this supernatural stuff, and I, and, and I do tend to think you are experiencing it, and it is supernatural, but how do you know any of it has any validity? Right? They didn't even want to begin to address that, I don't think. Anyway, that's sort of a side note, but I think that it's an interesting phenomenon, an interesting way of looking at it, because I think what I experienced, considering the totality of the experience, I don't think it was just in my imagination, but I think there was, <clears throat> there was what I, what ha- the specifics of what I was experiencing was probably phony, right? And it was some phenomenon that was giving me the, the impression that these things were happening. And I, I probably, if you mind, um, the easiest explanation in that one is just there were people there that, you know, imagine you're a more powerful psychic. You can't really touch the people's minds that are have no psychic sensations. But the people that are slightly psychic, you could kind of mess with them. And it was that's what I feel like. You know, it was just I was just being messed with psychically by someone that was that was there. Some sort of a, 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 a an occult college prank, okay? Anyway, so that was going through my mind as to this, like, how did I get turned around? It was like in those, uh, you know, there's always these uh, episodes of TV shows, science fiction, where they wind up <coughs> getting lost somewhere, and then they get back to another point they've been. They're, <laughs> like, lost in a, a maze in an old spaceship or something. But it felt like that, like I got completely turned around. So at that point, I saw the sign to get back on 287. I'm like, listen, I'm just going to get back on 287, and I'll look at the map later on and see what the hell happened. I completely failed to get to to Madison. (coughs) So anyway, looking at the map, it was very interesting. All right, so now I can see, looking at the map, 
I didn't look at the actual intersection on the on Google Maps here, but exactly what I did, the sign must have said 124 to the left because I was on South Street. So when I turned right, thinking I was going to go on 20, 124, I just went way down on South Street, right? And so, let's see if I can find the, uh, like what happened here. So I went down, then Spring Valley Road, and I turned left on Green Village Road, and then there I was at the corner of Green Village and Shunpike, <coughs> which was, I guess, technically, was actually that, that, that was actually very close to Drew. I turned left on uh, Shunpike, and then right on, uh, no, no, sorry, on Shunpike, I stayed on Shunpike, and then when I got to this intersection, it's the intersection I was at previously, I didn't realize it, though, I turned right on Spring Valley, and that's how I got turned around completely. But it felt very weird. It was just utterly bizarre. And I, yeah, so when I was on uh, Low and Taco Way, I remember that name from the Drew days. So I was super close to Drew University, but I didn't, I didn't make it. And to where I wanted to go. If I had simply turned right on Low and Taco instead of left, uh, I would have wound up there. And, and, and so I don't know, man. It was weird. It was like a very weird happening. It was the Mystery 124. Let me see if I can see that intersection on Google Maps because I'm, I'm just really. Let me see. Can we see it here? <coughs> Hold on. Yeah, here it is. Yeah. Oh, look. Oh, gosh. I see exactly what happened. I see exactly what happened. I see exactly what happened. Okay. So there is a sign that that shows. Left lane is left turn only, right lane is right turn only, and underneath it, it says 124. That's visually what I got. Oh, so you can turn left or right to go on 124. Meanwhile, underneath the 124 is a left arrow, which I somehow missed. Somehow. In the moment, I got, I, I, I got uh, confused. So, yeah, I was, uh, the sign is not really confusing, but I can see how it confused me. Anyway, that was weird. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I'm getting a bunch of hoodie deliveries today. You know, hoodies. It's like a zip-up jacket with a little hood on it. I have a few of them, and I, I like wearing them, mostly like around the house, if it's kind of cold inside, you know. Um, and today, I, I'm get, I just got some uh, from a sale, and then I'm going to get another one from another sale. <laughs> I think I'm getting like three hoodies today. I don't usually get any hoodies. They're hoodie deliveries. I'm very excited to check them out. Um, oh, anyway, so I turned on 287 from my Mystery 124, and I'm like, you know, I want to do something else fun. What should I do? Should I go to Willowbrook Mall? I'm like, yeah, no, no. Then I saw Route 10 approaching. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll drive down Route 10. That could be fun. <laughs> Listen, you got you to get your fun where you can get it. I'm like, wait a minute. I'll go to that, what used to be JR Cigar, what's now known as the Casa de Monte Cristo, the cigar store. Like I haven't been there in ages. I haven't been. I haven't been there. Uh, you know, probably in ten or fifteen years or twenty years. I mean, it's been a long time. I used to go there all the time. You know, now I just get my cigars online. But I used to. Go, I used to go to Jr. Cigar a lot. And I saw they had changed their name to Casa de Monte Cristo. So. And I know I. Dr I drove down that way a few times, and it just. It. Oh, here it is. Is this going to be my hoodie? I think so. Hoodie delivery. Hoodie delivery. 
how do they spell Casa de Monte Cristo? Is it like is the D E capitalized or not? You know, these are the things we need to know. I'm doing my show notes. D E is lowercase Casa de Monte Cristo, but it still it still says you know sort of like a bit uh, you know a division of J R Cigar or something like that on the sign. So J R Cigar is still involved. Casa de Monte Cristo. I think we, didn't I go to a Casa de Monte Cristo with Mad Mike doing one of our Anything but Monday type shows. Could that be it? I think that's my hoodie right there. <laughs> See, when I was on the site, I like I ordered a, a hoodie, and then it's like to get free shipping, you had to spend a, just like a couple more bucks. So I bought a, t- a t- shirt, but then I found like a discount code, and then it got rid of the free shipping because of the discount code. I'm like, oh well, but I should have gotten rid of this shirt because I didn't really need it. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. Psychology, man. UPS, come on. Give me a hoodie. Give me a hoodie. Can you believe I'm going to go down to City Hall t- tonight and I have to speak in front of everyone? <coughs> I mean, I, it's just going to be a... I just have a couple things to ask, you know. <coughs> it just... Uh, I'm sure it'll go quick. Who knows? It's not even that important. It's, this is going to happen anyway. I just want to ask about, like, uh, the fence and... You know, there's going to be a bunch of apartments looking down into my yard. That's the main thing, you know. I'm not sure it's really going to influence anything. But just to, ooh, there it is. There's my, there's, I think it's a hoodie. There it is. Hello. Hey, thank you. Let's see about this thing here. Hoodie delivery time. Yeah, American Giant. This is the company. All right, we'll 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 check this out a little bit later. Very excited though. These hoodie deliveries, same day too. I, they, they sort of came from totally different vectors of approach. Um, so yeah, I I pulled into I I got to you know because when you're approaching it going eastbound, you kind of don't see it until you're right on top of it. I used to always go there from 46, you know, by that shopping plaza there. <coughs> um, <coughs> I never really went there from 287, but anyway. So I went there, and the whole place, the whole time I was there, it had a very strange feeling, a very almost like depressed feeling. So I walked in. It was totally different than I remembered it. Back then, it was a cigar store, but they also sold, uh, like, perfume and stuff. Now it had been turned into, like, a bar and restaurant. And uh, (coughs) so I walked in. And you see all these people, there's like a darkened lounge area where people sitting around these little low tables. It's like very dark. Just sort of the natural light from the distant windows coming in. And everyone seemed very quiet just sitting around, I guess smoking cigars. Then you had to go in like past a bar. And, I was, and then I saw through windows, I saw the cigar store part of it. And then I couldn't even figure out, it's like to enter the cigar store, I had to sort of go behind it, like a counter or something where the waitresses were. It's like very dreamlike. This was real, though. And then it was the main room, which is a very nice space, kind of a darkened space, a huge room where all the cigars are. So I was doing some shopping, looking for some cigars. The guy's like, do you need any help? I'm like, hey, you know, do you have any pipe tobacco? You know, sort of thinking about getting into pipes. He's like, I've been out of it for a long time. He's like, yeah, no. We don't, we don't have it here anymore, but if you want to buy our pipe tobacco online, yeah, you know. I, <coughs> I said, you know, usually when I was smoking pipes, I would find a store that had their own blends. I know you can buy the little tins online, but the store blends were the ones I love. Like, 
I mentioned like John David down at uh, Menlo Mall way back. I mean, this is all stuff I'm talking about, like the 90s and stuff. But everyone there, like even the people working there, it seems all like very like quiet and depressed. And it was just very strange. Um, and I'm like, you know, then also Romance Emporium and Clifton used to have great pipe tobacco. He's like, yeah, you know, that was usually people that blended it, that smoked the pipes themselves. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so eventually I bought a few random cigars. And he asked the guy at the checkout counter. I'm like, you know, I used to buy this, these Mexican cigars here called Matacan. He's like, no, those don't exist anymore. But everyone was very, like, subdued and, like, depressed. It seemed like a, the place, it was something very strange about that place. I can't really put my finger on it. It just was, you know, in, uh, in a, in a, in a fancy, as a fanciful thought, if we are living in a computer simulation, which I think is probably one of the more likely scenarios, that I very I didn't even plan to go there, but I just sort of ran, I was like randomly thinking of places to go. So maybe the simulation didn't really have a good model for the updated JR cigar yet. So the one they came up with was like sort of temporary, and that's why everything was so weird in there. <laughs> anyway, listen, I, I know I overthink things, but anyway, here here is my little bag, a little cool little bag. It's like a Ziploc bag they give you. Casa de Monte Cristo. <coughs> Enjoy a cigar at Casa. Alright. Let me see what I got in here. See, they even threw in some matches. Nice. Ooh, a, tr- a triangular matchbox. That's very, very groovy. And I and I did buy a... No, what's this? Oh, more triangular matches. Okay. What did I... I got a few random cigars. I got a uh, nuance, Nub Nuance Triple Roast. I got the uh, Tabac Especial Dulce. I didn't realize it was Dulce. It's in like a like a plastic tube. Is that a sweet cigar? Then I also got the Crazy Alice and the N- Acid Nasty. These three are from uh, <coughs> are from uh, Drew Estate. But I think I'm going to have the Acid Nasty just because that'll look better in the show notes. Acid Nasty cigar. Oh, I just dropped it. See, and I'll use these mat, these cool triangular matches. Well, the box is triangular. I must commend their match boxes. There's been so many places you buy cigars, they don't have matches anymore. You need to have matches, please. So this acid nasty is like a torpedo. <coughs> it's like a tapered shape. It's like a, almost like a cone. And I think it has a little thing on the top. You can just twist it off. Acids are uh, like flavored cigars. Weird herbal spices and you know incense kind of why is it so hard to get this opened come on this acid nasty nasty acid <laughs> hold on acid nasty cigar that'll look good in the show notes I already said that I can't really squeeze it because of that little nub thing at the top that little they put on it. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Acid nasty. Ooh, nice. I'm going to twist it off. Oh, without destroying the cigar, hopefully. Destroyed a little bit, but hopefully it'll be okay. All right, let's get ready for some acid nasty. Has a cool, like, foil label. And there's their logos, like this weird cyberpunk 
tribal cyberpunk person on a motorcycle. Did did you? Okay, acid nasty. My okay, I found, I found an, a lighter in the garage that I could use. Let's have some acid. Oh, no, I was going to use the, uh, the matches. Come on. Triangular matches. Okay. There's only a couple matches in each box. I'll try this out here. Nice. Very analog. Well, lighters are too, but more primitive than a lighter. How do you say matchbox in, in French? Carton carton d'allumette. Yeah. Mmm, this is good. Acid nasty. Cause that men without hat song. It was written on the back of a carton d'allumette. Says I don't really miss you, but I haven't tried yet. Allumette, that's a, a match. Carton d'allumette. It's a good word. I like that. Mmm, acid nasty. It's a good one. Very tasty. Not heavily flavored, you know. It's a good one. Then I went home and everything was fine. <laughs> what do you want? Ah, what do you want? Pretty wild, though. Wild stuff, right? Oh, um, another dream I had. This was a, a quick one. Um, I was Ronald Reagan. And it was... Uh, it was very cool. Uh, I was in a, I was in like a government compound. It was almost like a military base or something. And there was a, I was in an elevator, like a glass elevator, and we were going down. And I was, I was Ronald Reagan, and there was this guy uh, next to me. But I, I also had the sense that I was pretending to be Ronald Reagan, but I was really Ronald Reagan. And I was there with another random person, one of these dream people. And in the distance, we saw the, I was the ex-president, the current president of the United States. And he was – it was like a real-life version of the president from Rick and Morty, so kind of a tall black guy. Um, so the guy's like, oh, my God, there's the president. I wish I could meet him. And I'm like, well, you know, considering who I am, I, I get to meet everyone I want to meet. I'm Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it was so awesome. And I was talking like that in a dream. I'm like, well, well, you know, uh, that's one of the benefits of being the ex-president is – I get to meet whoever I want. So I'll introduce you to him. Why don't we do that? So anyway, as it turns out, the the president came onto the elevator. I'm like, hello, Mr. President. He's like, oh, hello, Mr. President. I want you to meet my friend here. He was very excited to meet you, Will. <laughs> Ronald. I was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> anyway, as you know, if you listen to, the, I think, last episode, last couple episodes, I've been uh, really on a... Uh, an Anthony Newley kick. I've been really trying to understand this guy as I didn't know anything about him up until fairly recently. I know my mother said that she loved Anthony Newley, but I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and I remember I, I talked about his, one of his signature works is Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. I remember I talked about it on an episode of The Overnightscape. I remember I was in the Port Authority bus terminal and I talked about it a little bit because I didn't remember the title. I think from seeing it on a record album at, at a library. Um, so recently, and I, and then I bought a couple Anthony Newley records on our, our most recent Weasel Adventure. I got Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, and also uh, sings the songs from Doctor Doolittle. 
Anyway, so I've been getting more and more familiar with his work. I just watched him on The Tonight Show, like in the later 80s, singing a song from his musical Chaplin about Charlie Chaplin. Where interestingly, he talks about the dark side of great men. But in all the research I've been doing on Anthony Newley, and if you heard, I, I did play that interview with him and Merv Griffin on the last uh, other side, right? There's been something missing. Like there's something wrong with the historic Anthony Newley, right? First of all, I don't really remember his, his period of being almost like adjunct to the Rat Pack. He was big friends with Sammy Davis Jr. He would sing in Vegas. He was on all sorts of TV specials. He wrote, co-wrote the lyrics to Goldfinger, the Bond theme. Something about him, like, of course, I'm thinking timelines, alternate realities, Mandela effect, all this past editing, paranoia, all that kind of stuff. But let's not even go there. It feels awful like, like that kind of stuff, like I should have known more about this guy. Or... The specifics about this guy seem like they're freshly generated in this reality, but of course that's all just fanciful thinking. I was thinking there had to be something I was missing as to why this guy was so huge and then he kind of became much less popular. And uh, I found it. I Last night, yesterday, I found that he made a movie in 1969 that was, I think the New York Times said, was career suicide. It's a movie I had never heard of before in any way, shape, or form. It's almost impossible to find, but I found it and I watched it. So I've seen the movie now. This is some movie, and it really helps solve the mystery. This, it was career suicide to some extent. The movie is called Can, Ar- <laughs> Can Hieronymus Aronim- Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump? And find true happiness. Yes, that's the name of the movie. And uh, when it came out, it was rated X because there is uh, what they describe as softcore uh, content. But I mean, it, it would barely it would be an R rating today. But it was certainly not pornographic, in my opinion. Um, but it is a movie where he is. Hieronymus Merkin, and Merkin is sort of a covering of the pubic area, you know. Uh, The movie is completely autobiographical about this completely self-obsessed creative person who is trying to analyze his life. And the devil is played by Milton Berle. (laughs) It is amazing. Milton Berle's in the movie. Now, the copy I found appears to have been Tapes off of Bravo in the middle of the night in 1999. It's a, because I was watching the movie, and in the middle there was a commercial break <laughs> for Bravo. They only had one commercial break in the whole movie. It must have been shown like at 3 a.m. or something. <laughs> it's the only copy I could find online. Someone's selling a DVD of it on eBay, but it's probably just that same copy someone's going to burn on DVD for you. I found it on some weird Russian site. <laughs> It's not It's not on the Internet Archive. It's not on YouTube. It's not a torrent. I was lucky to find any copy of it. I, I'm glad I didn't have to buy the DVD. Uh, wow. Wow. This movie explains a lot. His wife, Joan Collins, that Joan Collins, yes, the Joan Collins that you may know, is in the movie as polyester 
Poontang is the name of all the names are very like dirty and subjective is suggestive. Polyester Poontang. And his two real children, young children are in the movie too. Playing the children of Hieronymus Merkin. Wow, this cigar is really good. And the movie is actually really good. But it contains an aspect. First of all, none of the none of the nudity was required in the least. The title, of course, is unwieldy and bizarre. The movie actually reminds me a lot of Head, the monkey's movie, from around the same time. Maybe Head was 68, but um, very much a freewheeling 60s movie. And people said it also is very influenced by Fellini. It's almost sort of like it's it's in the movie, it's a movie about making the movie about Hieronymus Merkin, right? And him reviewing all these aspects of his life and the critics criticizing it during the movie. There's a whole lot of that stuff going on. And it's like, it was, I feel like it was almost like a razor thin edge. That could, it it could have been a, a classic movie that we were, we'd all be talking about and that I would have watched in college and stuff. It's just the title and this one other aspect that I'll get to uh, really kind of ruined it. He, and it, he kind of ruined it, but it, it, it is good and brilliant, and it's really amazing. One side note is that uh, this, his physical appearance, Anthony Newley, especially at the, in 69, reminded me greatly of, uh, from Monty Python, was it Terry Jones, right? The, 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 the sort of the least known member of Monty Python. Really a very similar look to that guy. He's like, he's, in some scenes, almost looks exactly like Terry Jones from, from Monty Python. You know, because all the other members really, well, I guess Graham Chapman was sort of on the same level, but, um, you know, like Michael Palin and <coughs> John Cleese and, you know, all the other ones could have had Eric Idle. They seem to be more well-known. Uh, Terry Jones was sort of like the least distinctive of the Pythons. But anyway, they, lo- they looked almost identical in some scenes, identical to him in some scenes. But I'm going to read you this article from 2017 about the movie, and it does sound – it sounds pretty bad. It does sound bad. But when you see the movie, it's so disappointing because in the movie, about making the movie, the producers and the writers are telling the character, who is really Anthony Newley, listen, don't include this in the movie. It's going to ruin an otherwise great movie, and he included it, you know. I mean, it's in Mercy Hump is in the title, but let, let's uh, let's uh, reconvene here, and uh, I'll read you the article I found, and uh, <laughs> it's really quite, and it kind of explains why there was this downturn in his career and in his uh, in his popularity and everything else. All right, here's the article. It's from the Telegraph, November twenty seventh, twenty seventeen. The title is Hieronymus Merkin. The Surreal Sex Musical That Doomed Anthony Newley's Marriage to Joan Collins. So I'll just read you the article. And Joan Collins uh, took to Good Morning Britain recently to declare that she was never married to a pedophile, despite claims by her son, the artist Alexander Newley, who was known as Sasha. Speaking to a Sunday newspaper, Newley claimed that his late father, the actor, comedian, and singer-songwriter Anthony Newley was a child predator. 
He said, my father was drawn to youthfulness. He thought innocence was an aphrodisiac. That was his sexual proclivity, sexual proclivity, and it's a very dangerous, destructive thing. Collins, however, told Piers Morgan that her son was naive to use the word pedophile. What Tony admittedly was, she said, is he loved young women, and young women of 17, 18, 19 years old, not children by any means. Never in a million years would I have been married to somebody like that. Categorically, I can say that is not true, that I never saw any of that kind of behavior from Anthony. Newly claimed that a film that his father wrote, directed, and starred in was an autobiographical statement on his sexual urges, insisting the film is a a confession of pedophilia. Famed at the time for its ludicrously unwieldy title, 1960s 1969's Can a Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness is a surrealist, sex-drenched disaster. First of all, I just watched the movie, and I don't... There was some nudity in it. I have to imagine it was the complete version. It was not sex-drenched. That's a bit of an an exaggeration. A surrealist, sex-drenched disaster that could only ever have been made in the more freewheeling 60s. Released to significant controversy for United Pictures and given an X rating, it was dubbed an act of professional suicide by the New York Times. Now listen, people have not been able to see this movie. It has never been released on any home video format. Um, The movie is actually quite good. And I felt like this whole aspect of it where he's talking about this young woman, not a child, but a young woman, could easily have been uh, toned down a bit, as they talked about in the movie. And the movie would have, I think, been a classic. It's, it's, it has so much good about it. Not to forgive his proclivities, which, though maybe they may be of age, is certainly destructive and not a good thing. It's not what this other guy was saying, as far as Joan Collins is saying. <laughs> a lot of caveats here. Newley came up with the idea during his downtime on the set of Dr. Doolittle, 1967. I wanted to rewatch that because he was very involved in that movie. I would write down all I could remember about my life, he later said. The ladies, the selfishness, the death of my first child. Yeah, that's a part of the movie, too. It's very dark. Um, you know, but I think it's part of what makes it actually a good movie. It's not a terrible movie, like everyone's saying. The death of my first child. I decided this was going to be my movie. I would direct it, and for once, I'm the painter instead of the one... I'm the painter instead of one of the daubs of paint. He cast himself as the titular Hieronymus Merkin, a singing sensation who becomes concerned about his own legacy. To preserve it, he decides to direct his own autobiography, which we see in strung-together segments, which are themselves being watched by a worried film crew. Filming took place on the island of Malta, where the staunchly Catholic population grew concerned about its sexual content. The campaign against the movie was launched. A campaign against the movie was launched, claiming it besmirched the religious values of the island. The authorities allowed filming to go ahead, but the female stars found the shoot difficult. They weren't allowed to enter any churches or wear miniskirts, and the local women spat at them. Hieronymus's story is mostly played out on makeshift sets on a deserted beach. 
think a naughty seaside postcard meets Federico Fellini. We watch his journey from plucky youngster inspired to become a performer by a cameoing Bruce Forsyth to a randy celebrity sleeping with an endless parade of groupies. The latter leads to countless scenes of graphic nudity, including of Newley himself, all photographed in the style of Confessions of a Window Cleaner Smut. So I completely disagree with that. Again, maybe the version I saw was edited for television, but... It, it, it was not graphic nudity, and, and and he was nude, but I don't think you saw his, you know, you know his uh, Merkin area. You know, um, I don't know. I, again, I can't know if I if if there was anything, but there was nudity, female, you know, top female, topless nudity, you know, um, but very tamed for today's standards, and yeah. I, I I don't know. I mean, I I think almost no one's ever seen this movie. That's why everyone's just believing what they read in these stories. And, and here is a quote from the Devil, played by Mil- Milton Berle. Milton Berle was great in the movie. You know, he was a big he was a big star back in the day. I'm sure people of below a certain age never heard of Milton Berle, but you know. And this is a quote from the Devil in the movie: "As a rapist and lecher and all around good fellow." spouts the devil, played by Milton Berle. No one can touch him that he hasn't already touched. Um, and another guy that's in it is, uh, what the heck's his name? Um, he was like Al Jolson's partner. Uh, so back then in 69, some of these people that were back in like vaudeville, like in the 20s, were still alive because it was only, right, 50 years after like 1920, right? Hold on. Right, it's George Jessel, someone that I really wasn't, and the name rings a bell. I'm not too familiar with him, but he's doing all these, like, jokes. An Indian walks into a bar, you know. Uh, yeah, apparently George Jessel was, like, was a blackface performer back in the day, along with um, his partner, as I mentioned, uh, Al, Al Jolson, of course, yeah. Um, so his presence is actually very interesting and sort of, like, he, he sort of plays a character called The Presence, who's obviously meant to be God or something. I, you can't even really tell. And uh, another recognizable face, to me at least, is uh, Victor Spinetti. He's one of the critics. Critic Sharpnose is the name, but um, the the devil's called Good Time Eddie Filth. Uh, But yeah, the the critic Sharpnose is played by by Victor Spinetti, who played the director in A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. Remember that that guy who was very high-strung? Anyone else? Margaret Nolan, who, who was in a, a, a James Bond. She was a Bond girl. She plays Little Assistance. And Joan Collins is in it as Polyester Puntang, as I mentioned. Anyway, let's continue with the article, shall we? <laughs> uh, once the story finally kicks in, Hieronymus must choose between a mesmerizing woman named Polyester Puntang, played by Joan Collins, and a very young girl named Mercy Hump who he has also fallen in love with. Surrounding them are several other characters with puns for names, from Trampolina Wambang to Filigree Fondle. The film's premise is uncomfortable uncomfortable enough as it is, but there is one particular musical set piece that is quite jaw-dropping. Before we meet Mercy, Hieronymus is asked by his young daughter, played by Newley's own daughter, Tara, then aged five or six, what is wrong. He begins to tell her a story. Daddy was now in his early 30s and doing very well, but he was still searching for the perfect child lover, always looking, always wanting, but never daring. He continues, 
Then one day I met the child who was to become the crowning erotic passion of my life. She who was the personification of every nymphette I've ever chased across the green meadows of my imagination. Her name even now is like music. Her name was Mercy Hump. So, you know, uh, that went, you know, and in the, and again, in the movie, they're telling him it's going too far. And that is the aspect of the movie, I think, that really, uh, that is the missing piece of the puzzle as to what happened to this guy. Why did he sort of fall off the face of the earth? Though he didn't, but I think in terms of his mainstream popularity, it was career suicide. And that's why I had never heard of him to the degree I perhaps should have, considering his fame prior to that. Continuing here, he refers to the musical number as Chapter 4, The Dream of Humbert Humbert, referencing the pedophile at the center of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. The scene then cuts to a fairground in a forest where a former Playboy playmate, Connie Kresge, age 22 at the time of filming, is dressed in pigtails and a baby doll dress and riding a merry-go-round, a merry-go-round of pigs, by the way, one operated by the devil, newly reportedly bumped into her in the lift at London's Playboy Club and cast her on the spot. Hieronymus appears dressed in a cream-colored trench coat and Mercy spots him. She giggles before exclaiming, You're Hieronymus Codpiece. Hieronymus then breaks into song, singing, Sweet love child, little one made to love, don't be afraid to love, I'll show you how. Watching the scene from the set, one of the film's producers gasps, Oh my God, it's Captain Child Molester. Once the song is over, after the pair have danced through the various mechanical pigs on the merry-go-round, they retreat to a field where Mercy is shown in extreme close-up, moaning in ecstasy as Hieronymus takes her virginity. Watching Mercy's moans, a critic remarks, She's very compelling. Does she have any previous experience? Dramatic, I mean. According to promotional materials from the time, Joan Collins adored making the film. The role was more enjoyable than anything else I've ever played. She is quoted as saying, I understand the character. But Sasha Newley claims that his mother was destroyed by that film. It was a porno with my father as Casanova, he said in a 2015 interview. Much later, she realized what he was doing was confessing to the world he was a sex addict. Sasha certainly isn't the first to suggest that Hieronymus Merkin brought about the end of his parents' marriage. And nor is he the first to allude to his father's alleged proclivities. In a 1982 Rolling Stone story about Collins, the journalist Lynn Hirschberg writes of Anthony Newley, whom Joan did marry despite knowing of his penchant for very young girls. So the quote was, Anthony Newley, whom Joan did marry, despite knowing of his penchant for very young girls, references also made to Hieronymus Merkin, which Hirschberg described as having dramatized Newley's predilection for young girls. My eyes were opened properly for the first time in years, Collins wrote in her 2013 autobiography, Passion for Life, when discussing the film. I saw my husband in full technicolor, almost naked, making love and kissing a parade of women, none of whom meant anything to him. I finally saw that Tony really only cared for Tony, so I took the children and went back to London, and that was divorce number two. And in the movie, she took the children away and said, we're going back to Europe. So it's like the movie completely mirrored like reality in that way, which reminds me of some other movies we'll get to. 
Released in 1969, the X-Certificate film garnered significant publicity from a 10-page photo spread in Playboy magazine featuring many of the film's female stars, including Kresge, who was 1968's Playmate of the Year. Following disastrous press screenings, 40 people are said to have walked out in early previews, and in fact, the critics in the movie walk out while they're watching the movie. The reviews were damning. For pretentiousness and vulgarity, not to say tedium, Hieronymus Merkin would be hard to equal, wrote wrote the Daily Telegraph. The Illustrated London News called for every copy to be quietly and decently buried, which essentially has happened. As for Newley himself, the New York Times likened his film to an act of professional suicide. Defending Hieronymus Merkin, Universal Pictures claimed it wasn't just banal filth, but instead a film with artistic value and modern conception. But with there being no such thing as bad publicity, the film's promotional department ended up exploiting the controversy, along with its ludicrously long title. When newspapers refused to print it in their pages due to its length, cinemas in the United States were encouraged to tout it as a mystery film with guaranteed nudity while claiming that newspapers had declined to publish its title as it was far too obscene. In a 1969 interview with the BBC, Noodley made a not entirely successful attempt to describe and defend the film. It is an autobiography. I guess it's more like a poem, really, inasmuch that a lot of it is pantomime and visual. And don't be put off by the pantomime. I can't think of any other word to describe the sort of thing that Charlie Chaplin did which was just pictures. It's a musical, too. It has music to it. It's a story with music, is what it is, but that's so dry. But that's what I'd like people to call it. To be fair to Newley, the gleeful provocation of the film's premise appears to be deliberate. When Hieronymus launches into his monologue about child lovers, the producers behind his biopic are seen shaking their heads and looking appalled. But that Newley felt so comfortable with such themes particularly when they lack any of the satire of Lolita, is an undeniable red flag. A scene in Hieronymus Merkin depicts Newley's character being confronted by a producer who begs him to reconsider the Love Child musical number, recognizing its uncomfortable optics and its disconcerting tone. Regardless of whether Newley did or did not have a predilection that crossed into illegality, he would have been wise to take the suggestion on board. Nearly 50 years later, it's not a good look. So, I knew nothing about this, and but it really must have just thrown cold water on the whole thing. I, I guess sort of the, uh, the central mystery is why did he go ahead and uh, push this movie just a bit too far? Um, and... Uh, I have a feeling, I was watching some other interviews with him about uh, when he was doing Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd, in the U.S. saying that he was tired of performing, tired of proving himself all the time. And it may have been uh, truly an act of professional suicide. Maybe he wanted to end his career or slow down his career or something. Um, However, as I'd like to point out, I, I, I understand that this particular aspect of the movie is enough to turn everyone away from it. Um, beyond that, the movie is actually quite good. Again, if you liked Head by uh, the Monkeys, it's very similar to Head 
in its general tone. Um, and it also seems to be relatively an, an artist's honest uh, autobiography, warts and all, and they're very bad warts, obviously. Um, it's bizarre and uh, strange. And he went on to have quite a varied and somewhat successful career after that, though certainly not at the level he was at in the 60s, uh, before that, and even in the fif- later 50s. But this is the answer I was looking for. This is the reason that his uh, reputation and his star f- started falling, was because of this movie I, I had never heard of before. And um, anyway, it's an answer, and I would recommend it. I, again, it's it's not... You will see more nudity on the average HBO show these days than you'd see in this movie, honestly. Um, it's, 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 it's not, by today's standards, it's not sex-drenched or whatever. But, um, And it was just interesting, that, that interview with him with Johnny Carson. I'll see if I can find that later um, on, the, on The Tonight Show. And just like his singing voice, I don't know, maybe we should check that out. <laughs> Let's just check that out. This is this is years later now. Let's go. Do, do, do. Let's see. Let me check my YouTube history. I just watched this this morning. <laughs> history. 1983. <coughs> yeah, let's check this out. Because there, there's something about his his singing almost sounds like someone parodying a singer. But it's just his singing voice. Let's see what we got here. Anthony Newley, Remember Me, 1983. Here's another guy that... I remember talking to people at work about Johnny Carson a couple years ago, and they had no... From, he's completely fallen off the face of the earth. Johnny Carson was the biggest star, has <coughs> kind of joined... Anthony Newley and the Oblivion Club. A talented performer. <coughs> a new musical chaplain will be in previews at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from uh, July 29th, October 1st. Didn't that come out right? Yeah. July 29th to October 1st. And it's going to open in New York at the end of October. Would you welcome Anthony Newley? Yes. I don't ever remember seeing him on any talk shows, but if I did, I would have probably forgotten him. I didn't know who he was back in the day. Now who's who's that star? There's there's Ed McMahon. You're correct, sir. John, with yes. your with your kind permission, yes, I, I would like to acknowledge the fact that most of the cast of Chaplin are in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not usually get this kind of reception. No, I don't. I'd Thank you, guys. I noticed in the monologue when I mentioned yeah, that. I said, yeah. my goodness, that's getting a lot of press It may coverage. have something to do with the fact that there was a small note in the salary check. So you <laughs> Unless you appear tonight, this is the last salary check you received. So you, you salted the house tonight, yes, as I they say. Yes, I salted the house. Thank How's you, it guys. going? You said you were a little nervous. Oh, uh, sure, sure. You opened previews at the end of this month. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, um, we have been working on this for two and a half years now, my partner and I. So right. uh, this is like a long uh, erotic uh, escapade without being allowed 
to have the final enjoyment, if you <laughs> get my opinion. Yes, I think so. But, uh, so this is, uh, has been a very long uh, road for us, but uh, terribly exciting. Yeah. We went, uh, yesterday we went to look at the stage at the Dorothy Chandler, which is completely clear, except for about 300 guys with oxyacetylene torches. It looks like a shipyard down there, because our set is enormous. Right. I mean, it goes up and turns... So there's a note on the YouTube video here. Anthony Newley sings Remember Me, the 11 o'clock song from his music, his musical chaplain on The Tonight Show. Unfortunately, although it got very close, the show would never reach Broadway. After a run in Los Angeles in 1983 and a rewrite and run in Houston in 1985. So this never became a big hit, Chaplin. Sideways and comes in steam and everything. Yeah. And it's really kind of a staggering... Uh, sight to see a show taking shape. Obviously, you can't cover all of Chaplin's life. Is there a certain no. period in his... Uh... Uh, we, in fact, John, do cover his entire life from the age of six to his death. Yeah. yeah. In, in, like uh, a cause uh, of John. Hello, John. Johnny Carson. Sort of a... We flash forward and backward in time and mix them up. Um, I always found Chaplin's childhood fascinating because uh, both Stan and I were more interested in the making of Chaplin the Clown than than Chaplin, the performer, because I always thought that was done. Nobody did that better than him. Right. So, really, our story is, is the private Chaplin, well, which is a pretty extraordinary story. Uh, did you ever meet him? I only met him once in New York when, they, when he was back there uh, at the Lincoln Center, and they he had a tribute. Man, he was a very old yeah, man. Yeah. And somebody had a party afterwards, and, uh, you know, he's a legend, of course. Yeah. And he came across the room, and before I could say anything, yeah. they always take it away from you. And he said, you know, I've watched you, and you're was quite wonderful. Now I didn't know what to say. Yeah, you're yeah. quite wonderful yeah. too. <laughs> say, Johnny Carson met met Charlie Chaplin. Wow, good story, John. Uh, but he's very, yeah. very sweet. Yes, <laughs> sweet. yes. It, it, Did you find out a lot of things about him you didn't know? Oh, in research. Yes, yes. I mean, I think Stan and I read every book there was about him. The autobiography of his, uh, as well as all the biographies. And uh, but you know, John, like all really great creative people there were so many sides to charlie i'm not sure that even stan and i are privy to them he had his dark side like all great men uh, uh yeah come on tony and uh, we have shown some of that because i think if you know the human part of great men somehow it makes the good things they do just as interesting you know right. nobody has ever been perfect in the course of history and charlie wasn't perfect but See, he's talking about himself there and all of his ter those terrible things. He means, but he did make the entire world laugh at one time. And what's extraordinary is there were parts of the world that had never heard of Jesus Christ who knew Charlie Chaplin's name by rote. That, that, yeah. That's celebrity. He first gave you a word. Wait, wait, just like John Lennon, he was bigger than Jesus? Now, wait a minute, you get in trouble for saying that. Remember John Lennon tried to make the same point? You know, we're bigger than Jesus, and then everyone started burning his records. Like, no, that's not what I meant, but oh well, forget about it. Twice before he became a film star with the Carno Troupe, which is a, a group of uh, vaudeville performers, and uh, they didn't get very good reviews. The second time they came, Charlie got the reviews, and the show was bombed. Uh, uh, Carno, uh, Max Sennett, the right. famous uh, Max Sennett uh, filmmaker, saw him, and uh, one night and remembered the name and when one of his performers dropped out of his uh, out of his uh, film company he wired Chaplin and that's really how Charlie right. came see some, someone should now make a musical about Anthony Newley in the same style as the Chaplin musical with all of his dark sides and everything yeah. to Hollywood 
but he was terrified. I mean, he didn't think he'd be any good at all. And he was quite prepared to go into the pig business. He and a friend were going to open a pig farm in Nebraska if it didn't work. (laughs) Wait, pigs again, just like the merry-go-round with pigs. Buck was terribly important for Charlie. He made mostly silence, right? He did make some Uh, talkies. He made about four or five talkies. But Charlie's talkies were not really what he was about. Yeah. Uh, His art and the cinematograph came together at the perfect time. And if it weren't for that giant ego, of course, which he enjoyed, uh, he... See, he's sort of talking about himself again, the giant ego. He, he perhaps should not have made talkies. I, I don't think so, anyway. Now, you're going to do a number tonight. I think yeah. it's the first time you've mm-hmm. you've done this number, certainly on television. Mm-hmm. Um, does this need it? And I thought this was so strange, just the style of this. Like, it's on The Tonight Show. It's on, like, you know, millions of people are watching, and this is just sort of the style of singing. And he's a good singer. It's just the style is... So different. I guess it's brought. I guess the thing is, as I've been trying to learn more about this guy, I just I don't have an ear for Broadway musicals. You know, it's not really my my favorite. It's not a style of music I really appreciate. But anyway, any little background explain? Sure, yes. please. Uh, it's a number called "Remember Me," and it's right at the toward the end of the show. Charlie was having great trouble with the with the American uh, political scene and with and. He was very unpopular. Uh, the, 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 the dichotomy... All right, here it comes. Something very, very familiar coming up. ...between that funny little guy on the screen, the poor man, and the private chaplain was so enormous for the American public. They couldn't believe that this guy would absolutely... He, in real life, he was a millionaire. He loved his millions, and he married very young girls, which they also... <coughs> and so the two chaplains were so uh, different that I think, uh, it, to many people's eyes here, he became a bit of a... A monster, and on the on the boat coming to Europe, the, uh, the inter- See, this really is so interesting. And in, in, you know, when in comparison to that article, like it is weird that first he made a movie about himself as kind of a monster, and now he's making a movie about another guy who is viewed as a monster. Colonel so. Revenue sent him a cable saying, "You will not be allowed back into America unless you stand trial on your politics and your morals." And it broke his heart. And he sings this song to the Statue of Liberty as it fades into the background. I sing yes, thank you. So now he gets up from the chair and goes over to the stage. His stage hand like hands him a microphone. There's the Statue of Liberty. Thank you for the walking papers, lady with the torch. It seems New York's the last I'll ever see. And and he had been doing these lounge shows like this, like one man shows and the Catskills and Vegas and stuff. So just this style of singing, you know. I guess I'll have to say where he's holding the microphone with one hand and then like gesticulating with his other hand, you know. Maybe a torch song will do. But I mean, like, when is the last time you saw something like this on a on a modern talk show? Someone just sort of singing like this, like getting up from the couch and singing. Something very strange. Something's not clicking for me watching this. There's something very strange about this style. Oh, look. It's suggested videos. Ronald Reagan on The Tonight Show. Wait a minute. I was just talking about Ronald Reagan. Hey, 
just like his facial expressions while he's singing. It does really feel like sort of like Martin Short imitating a singer like this, you know, like dressed up in makeup. But this is a real guy. <laughs> I know there's people that really enjoy this style of music. It's just not a style of music that I particularly care for, but it's very interesting. <coughs> and it never reached Broadway. Very sad. Very sad for Anthony. He, he, he died in 99, so he saw a lot of life left after this. Well, how much more? 16 more years? But it just, I mean, the level of confidence in the performance is uh, immense. But it, look, it looks like he has a toupee, though, now in retrospect. Because I know he's very proud of his hair in the past, but that does not look real at this point. I, like, I don't know. Like, all Broadway songs sound like this to me, but this doesn't really sound like that good of a song, though, you know? <laughs> right? It's pretty bad as a song. It seems lady. 1983. What was that just like 40 years ago now? Kind of a long time ago. I may have been, yeah, I was a teenager. I was probably staying up to see The Tonight Show now and then. Sip of water from the cup. I wish you much success with it. You once said, I think in an interview, that uh, performing, you made you nervous and Mm -hmm. you found applause embarrassing. Is that fairly... Uh, yes, I was younger then. And <laughs> <laughs> you mean you would have you would have had preferred to have dead silence no, no, after? No, 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 don't get me wrong. What no, do you mean? I, I, I like it now. Yeah, I didn't like it then. <laughs> no, I uh, like many performers. Uh, I always found walking on a stage a truly terrifying experience. Yeah. I, I think I told you before. I always remember Barbara Streisand saying to me that when she did her first audition, she refused to face front. She faced backwards and I never understood how she had any kind of career <laughs> facing the other way facing the other way yeah but, uh, it can be it talent. can be uh, kind of a traumatic yes, thing walking is. out I there mean, you know what I'm saying <laughs> that, uh, that we'll take a break. we'll be right back stay where you are <laughs> wow that's it very interesting stuff here's Reagan when, when it has re- 75 wow this is so he would have been uh so we created Probably the ex-governor of California at the time. Here, oh, Johnny's so much younger in '75. Look, we're talking with uh, former Governor Reagan. Uh, yeah. During the break, we were discussing. There he is, uh, Ronnie. Most people uh, were not apathetic. I think they're confused, basically, because you hear 
intelligent people from uh, both political parties or in the middle, conservatives and liberals, and they all seem to have different answers as to what is going wrong in the country. Some people say, well, let's let the government spend billions of dollars. Let Ronnie talk. Let Ronnie talk. Federal spending. Uh, let's give the tax rebates. And the other intelligent people say, no tax rebates. <laughs> Look at Reagan, man. So everybody is confused. How, how old was he back then? The what, how are we going to get out of this? Well, well, Johnny, I think one of the things is that people <laughs> keep looking to government for the answer. I was him in the other night in a dream. Wait, what did he say? I, I spoke. Sorry, Ron. Sorry, Ronnie. One of the things is that people keep looking to government for the answer, and government's the problem. <laughs> Very libertarian. You, you asked, you know, about people and feeling not only confused, but low and, and down in America. First of all, the American people, if they would just take a little inventory and look around. He was 64 at the time. Trip around our troubles, and we're better off than any other people on earth. And we've asked so much of government, and we've gotten in the habit over the last 40 years... He really was like a human cartoon character. Look at this guy. There's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves. And if government would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks, we'd never miss them. Now, the... If, if the people Anybody wanted to you had in mind particularly? <laughs> All right, enough of that. Enough of that, anyways. Interesting stuff. Anyway, let's uh, check out this uh, this one hoodie. Is the one. It was on sale because they're really very pricey. But I kept getting ads on Facebook for these, uh, these hoodies. But this one was on sale for a bit less. And, uh, the one I'm wearing right now is kind of a crummy one. Ah, yes. Clay colored. I guess people don't like the clay color. Anyway, we got here. Anything else? Why does it feel like there's something else in here? So I got this, this shirt, which is kind of a mustard yellow color, which is my favorite color. I guess I kind of a dark yellow is kind of my favorite color. American Giant, so it looks like a good T-shirt. But yeah, this uh, this one. All right, let me take the one off I have here. Let's see hoodies. Let me try this on. I do like the color, the clay color. <clears throat> it's just something I will use a lot. You know, it's not like a waste of money. Yeah. Sorry, I covered you up with the old hoodie. Oh, this is nice. I like this. It's supposed to be good materials. Ooh, let's see. Let's see. The hell? The zipper's sticking? That's not a good sign. Wait a second. All right. Well, that's not. That's kind of a problem. Now, hold on. Hold on a minute here. Oh, it opened up. Wow. I like. I like this. It's a very kind of a heavyweight, good feel to it. Ah, look at this. Kitty, what do you think? Nice. Let's see if it's a good size. The zipper came off. It's fine. It didn't come off. It undid. All right. It's, it's supposed to be high-quality zippers, too. All right. Well, I think this is pretty good. I like it. I can dig it. This is very different. I, I really like this a lot. Let me put my headphones back in here. Hmm. Go look in the mirror here. Hoodie deliveries. 
We have this shirt too. I'm bring this upstairs. It's like it's just a t-shirt. I like this. This shirt's a good color. It's my favorite color, and I don't have any shirts of it, so that makes sense. This is another birthday present to me, like my little copper fiddly toy. All right, let me see how I look in here. Oh, nice. Oh, it's very nice. It's a great, great, uh, great purchase. American Giant hoodie, clay colored. I like this color a lot. I could see, like, it, it definitely is a little darker than it, than it shows on the website. I can see how people, with so many other colors available, they may not enjoy the clay color, but it's kind of a brown-gray kind of color. But uh, very nice. Very glad I got it. Hoodie deliveries. Check out the other ones, too. They were a bit less expensive. All right, the other two are interesting, very different. Again, they were cheaper. One is a half zip. I thought it was a full zip for some reason. Very nice though. The other one is more of sort of a sweater material. So uh, they're very good, but that, that one I got from American Giant, very cool, very cool. Anyway, um, I wanna talk about the process of today's show art, of course, which is, today's show is called uh, Wheel of Transit. Um, I originally was gonna, do uh, something, some some version of like Flea Devil Solitaire because you know I've been uh, really the past week or so just a very intense uh, time of uh, development on Flea Devil, and uh, every time I feel like I've really gotten there, I haven't quite gotten there. So I've been really working on the rules, um, three zonkers, royalties, et cetera, et cetera. I got I went to Barnes and Noble, got a new uh, deck of cards I've been using. Um. It's not quite the rule set's not quite there yet. I thought I was closer than I was. It's getting it's getting there, but it's not quite perfect yet. I feel like I'm zeroing in on the right rule set, doing so much uh, so much uh, play testing. Anyway, so I made a a logo for Flea Devil Solitaire, and I got it to a point that I like the look of it. Um, using a some a close version of the font Ben God Zenodipity uh, with a, a dotted outline, which kind of feels very kind of like 60s or 70s, like a show marquee. But I, I, you know, I feel like it needs a bit, a lot more finesse, but I figured why not show that logo just in its current state on the, uh, the show art. So I played around with that, but it really wasn't right. It really needs a little more finesse, a little bit more work before it's ready for prime time. So I was looking for something else and ran across this kind of a random scan, um, as you can see in the show art. Uh, I, I started scanning in a lot of my old printouts at some point with the thought of doing thousands or tens of thousands of them, but then that whole project fell by the wayside. I was doing that, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. But this was a, uh, it was labeled Wheel of Transit logo 4393, so April 3rd, 1993. And I just thought that was really quite a remarkable logo. It's sort of uh, the letter W with all these lines crossed and almost like a maze. As you can see there on the, on the logo. And because it was a scan, it's kind of a dark gray on a light gray. And uh, so I just, and it's a little bit off center, and I, that's how the scan was. 
And I included um, the Overnight Escape freshly typeset, uh, trying to match the kind of the feel of the other stuff in the Image Club Graphics Republic font, because I was thinking about all these obscure font companies recently, and Image Club was a good one. Um, so yeah, and uh, Wheel of Transit was a concept I had, which I think was um, very much... Uh, A version of the Obliviana concept, right? Where it was like using the power of moving around in new ways, wield of transit. I really would have to look up my specific meaning of it, but it was one of those phrases, one of those titles of things that I use that I don't think I really use very often. It's something that feels very familiar to me personally because I came up with all these ideas, but wield of transit. I wonder if it was in that set of... Was that was it? Did I do it in that set of? I have those Frank Norg uh, trading cards. Is that still online somewhere? Yeah, I think we can find it here. The uh, the logos I made, the fake logos. Let me see if I can find that here. Checking this out. Okay, where is this? Yeah, I'll find it here. Hold on a second. Yeah, the co I called them coding seeds. Uh, let me just scan through here. Yeah, this was '98 though, so yeah, this was many years, several years later. I did these set, this set. Hmm. All these logos, these fake. I made all these logos for like fake things, you know. Is a wheel of transit in here? Uh, Maybe not. Just scrolling through here. No, I guess it didn't make it. It didn't make it into here. Okay. Mm hmm. But I mean, it definitely has a similar feel to some of these logos. Anyway, let's not even worry about that one. Uh, and it, I mean, it, and that what I just talked about is in the uh, the vault that's included with all the various versions of the archive here of the Ansug. So yeah, I just thought that was a, a cool logo. So I mean, I didn't do any change to the coloration, the tone, and this is exactly what you see is what you get. The uh, Wheel of Transit logo 4393. I'm just calling the episode Wheel of Transit. I like it. It's kind of cool. There you go. Anyway, a completely different topic uh, sort of struck struck me recently. They used to always talk about like like little old ladies with blue hair. Remember that whole thing? And I was thinking like, well, that was a long time ago. And it does seem like a lot of young women today have blue hair. So this may be proof for reincarnation, right? Because this is something that happened like I think in the 30s or 40s. But was, I found an article about it that all the women had blue hair. And then... Now all the women, young women have blue hair, so they may be the reincarnated old ladies with blue hair. You see what I'm saying? It just, I just thought about that. The blue hair phenomenon. Here's the article from Mental Floss. Blue stayed dues. How, do, how blue became old ladies' hair color of choice. See, I, ne I never knew of this. In fact, I never even saw old ladies with blue hair. I just remember hear, hearing people talk about it. Long before Friends fans flocked to salons asking for Jennifer Aniston's The Rachel, 
Jean Harlow popularized another head-turning hairstyle. Locks so blonde they looked white. Her appearances in films like Hell's Angels, 1930, and the aptly titled Platinum Blonde, 1931, inspired women to bleach their hair, too. Hairdressers used hydrogen and ammonia to turn tresses pale yellow, but the secret to achieving that silvery shimmer was a blue chemical solution called a blue rinse. It wasn't an outrageous idea since people were already customized, accustomed to brightening their white linens with bluing agents. Almost immediately, beauticians and advice columns started recommending blue rinses to older women as a way to restore luster to their gray or yellowish-white hair. Though it worked well when, properly done, a botched rinse could leave hair looking anywhere from slightly bluish to decisively purple. This happened frequently and not always by accident. Some women, having observed the lavender effect and decided that it heightens rather than lowers their standing on the beauty scale, go in for it deliberately, a columnist wrote in the Baltimore Sun in 1939. At this particular moment, it appears the ladies are on the verge of forgetting the original intention of the blue rinse and using it for its own sake. Here's a picture of Jean Harlow getting her hair set in 1933. Wow, there's Jean Harlow. Whatever happened to Jean Harlow? I, I can't say that I, I know the name, and I'm not really sure, like, whatever happened to her. She must be dead by now, yes. Oh, she died, what? She died young. What the hell? She died at age 26 in 1937. I didn't know that. That's sad. I didn't mean to say that in, in the voice of uh, the, that uh, Nimoidian from Star Wars. Send a droid. They must be dead by now. That's very sad that she died so young. I didn't really know about the Jean Harlow thing. What happened to her? What the hell happened to Jean Harlow? What happened? <sighs> she had, she had the influenza. Um, well, this is really long, the section about her death. Uh, um, she had scarlet fever when she was 15. Wait. The evening she was taken to Good Samaritan Hospital. She slipped into a coma. I don't know. I can't remember. She got sick and died anyway. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about blue hair. The colorful craze might have lost steam if Hollywood had soured on platinum hair, but Harlow was far from the last of the blonde, was far from the last of the blonde bombshells. Marilyn Monroe helped usher the fad right into the 60s with more than a little help from Clairol's Blondes Have More Fun advertisements. Blue rinses persevered, and blue hair continued to be marketed to older women as a technique for graceful aging. If you have gray hair and like it, why not dramatize it a bit? Use a blue rinse, Edith Thornton McLeod wrote in a 1953 article for her syndicated column Beauty After 40. You can have a soft blue cloud effect, or you can make it deep and dramatic to match your accessories to the color. By the 70s, the phrase Blue Rinse Brigade began popping up in reference to old ladies just uh, doing just about anything, from attending Scottish National Orchestra concerts to protecting the streets of Vienna, Austria, from petty criminals. It also became a popular and occasional pejorative way to describe an older, older female voters who furthered the conservative agenda in Britain. While blue hair might not be as popular among older women as it was a few decades ago, the fad hasn't died out. Jean Harlow's blue baton has been passed to Lady Gaga, multiple Cardassian sisters, and also Benjamin Netanyahu. What? He has blue hair? I don't know. He, he, was, the, he was the president of Israel or something? Anyway, 
So you wonder why so many people have blue hair now, that younger people, they reincarnated and they, they dig blue hair. It's proof of reincarnation, damn it. So a bit of an update from last episode. The popcorn coffee from India, I failed to notice there was an additional description underneath. This is only available for mail order in India, in certain of the states of India, so I, I'm not able to get it. But here's what it says additionally. Popping up delicious popcorn coffee in Jaipur. Isn't this a fascinating concept? Popcorn coffee is our sincere effort to stretch our limits, to touch the heights of innovation. Trying everything that's new, that allures the interest of the guests, is our forte. To give try to our newly introduced beverage, i.e. the popcorn coffee, visit our cafe. Popcorn coffee is one of the best creative beverages that we have in our elaborate menu. Popcorn and coffee is a magic combination that has hugs and kisses in a cup. It has a mild fragrance that attracts to give it a try. The movie plan is incomplete without popcorn and popcorn-flavored coffee is icing on the cake. It is the best beverage to have as a companion. It dissolves you within it giving a pop for life. I mean, I'm assuming this is translated from, you know, an Indian dialect, and the English is a little awkward, but you get the idea. Popcorn coffee is one of the most ordered beverages at Mr. Coconut. The reason behind it is we use a properly managed recipe in which every step is carefully performed to maintain a good kosher of the coffee. We make popcorn coffee very fresh, so it does not lose its taste. Maintaining its freshness is not a piece of cake. Popcorn coffee at Mr. Coconut is the best coffee in Jaipur. Mouth-to-mouth publicity of this beverage is touching the sky. So, without spilling any more beans about this unique dish, we would recommend you try it for yourself. If you also have heard about the popcorn coffee at Mr. Coconut, don't resist your craving. You must check it out by yourself. For people seeking great business opportunities in the cafe business field, Mr. Coconut has a brilliant franchise idea to run a cafe effortlessly. If you wish to inquire about our franchise business model in India, contact us on, and they give their phone number. Okay. Now I want it all the more, but I, I, I mean, it, India is not a place you go lightly. I mean, you, I, you know, it's very expensive to go to India. I don't think you can just go there. You have to get visas and stuff. and You know, anyway. It's a whole thing. I do want to try popcorn coffee, though. The way they, I mean, it really sounds great. I mean, <clears throat> the recipe, what's the recipe? Hmm. What? They give you the recipe? They're giving it away. Oh, for mocha coffee. Oh. Wait. <laughs> Hold on. Recipe for one recipe for <coughs> one cup of mocha coffee. Follow this recipe to prepare a delicious cup of mocha coffee at home. But it is popcorn coffee. Ingredients required. 90 milliliters of milk, 10 milliliters of popcorn syrup. Well, there's your answer right there. You got to find popcorn syrup. One spoon coffee powder, sugar as per taste. Coffee powder. Hmm. The process to follow. First, boil the milk. Now, add popcorn syrup, coffee powder, and sugar in frothing milk. Froth the milk well. Coffee is ready to be served. Okay, so now, okay. Now, all right. 
So it's basic, yeah, okay, coffee powder. Okay, it's like, is, is it like freeze-dried coffee or coffee powder? Popcorn syrup. Okay, here we go. Popcorn syrup. Syrup, syrup, syrup. How do you pronounce that? Monine popcorn syrup. Okay. I wonder if they don't say what brand they use, though. How to make popcorn syrup. I feel, I feel like I'm going too far into this pointless topic. Monin popcorn syrup, 700 milliliters. Le syrup de Monin, une tradition de qualité, a quality tradition, yes. Statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or health condition. <laughs> the hell. <coughs> this tastes awful. Look at these reviews. Has a terrible, unpleasant taste. Wow, what's going on out there? Okay, so you just use popcorn syrup. Choose your own popcorn syrup. And but here's another one: 1883 Maison Rutan popcorn syrup made in France. Seems like they're making a lot of popcorn syrup in France now. They have the techniques. Today we are going to make popcorn syrup. Hi guys. What? This is the secret. This is what we were looking for the whole time. And was thinking how to make it. I went to the internet and didn't find any clear instructions of how to make popcorn syrup at home. And I never made it. I feel like yet. my attention span is waning on this topic. To make it and Let's fast forward. So he's making popcorn. More taste from the I, think, I think this is like a gag. I don't. I don't. Know. Anyway, um, great popcorn syrup. Good. Well, what is it? All right, let's just finally. What is the more expensive one? You can get it at Walmart. Walmart sells popcorn syrup from France. Listen, there's some some reality is just like in the dream. Reality is breaking down at this point. Okay, something's not right. Restaurant supply drop. Let's see, popcorn syrup, 1883 Maison Rutan. Part of our largest selection of coffee shop supplies and syrups. We carry every syrup. Popcorn syrup has a milky vanilla taste that reduces into a toasted flavor of popcorn. <coughs> wow. Fully vegetarian. Okay. Nice. All right. I don't think I have to go to India. If I really want to do this, I can probably do it here, here at home. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And another update, um, I was mentioning the new drug dealer album, Hiding in Plain Sight, and the font that I recognized but couldn't quite identify. As I was uh, perusing obscure fonts on fonts in use, I often do research on obscure fonts in my spare time. Uh, I found that the font they used uh, was <coughs> Abbey Scroll, a really quite a obscure font. And uh, this is very recently this happened, uh, October 2022. October 29th, 2022, they, they added this. The Herb Lubalin Study Center added this. A rare contemporary sighting of the Abbey Scroll typeface. Looks like the typeface was set using scans or images of the face rather than being typeset, as there is currently no digital version of this face available. 
The cover was art directed by the musician behind the band drug dealer, Michael Collins, together with designer Teddy Rollins. So, released by Mexican Summer. Super obscure font. I love seeing a super obscure font. So, um, And you can see on the Daylight Fonts a full, I think they link to it. Do they link to it? Maybe not. But you can see it on uh, a full a full showing of the face, you know, the letters on uh, Daylight Fonts from Japan. Um, very cool. Font history, man. All right, let me close. Popcorn coffee windows are open. No more popcorn coffee. I'm done with that topic. Okay. All right. I think we head outside. All right, back outside now. This acid nasty is really very good. Quite a good cigar. It's actually not nasty. It's wonderful. In a nasty way. So anyway, as I mentioned, it was Halloween yesterday. Um, I did not dress up. Well, I did actually dress up. My wife at work, she works at an activity. She's an activity director at a nursing home, so her whole staff dressed up as The Price is Right. And she dressed up as the wheel, the showcase showdown wheel. Very cool costume. It's just kind of a thing that you, you lower down on yourself and you go into. And it's like this, the wheel, you know, the wheel they spin and they have to get as close as they can to a dollar to be a part of the showcase, right? So when she came home, I actually put it, I donned it, as they say. I put it on and walked around outside for a few minutes. So I did wear a costume technically. Now the cats are using it as, as a cat bed on the table. I don't know where we're going to put it, but it's uh, a very good costume, though. It's very comfortable for the cats. It's like a, it's like a wonderful doubles as a cat bed, yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been here for about three years, and we did not get a lot of trick-or-treaters the last couple of years, but then again, it was the pandemic. Um, so we started getting a lot of trick-or-treaters. So at first, I, I'm like, oh, we're not going to get too many. I'm like, okay, kids, take a couple things. We had, you know, we had good, we had, you know, like Reese's Pieces, Almond Joys, you know. Hershey bars. We had good kind of stuff like that. Though then later on, we added pretzels, and all the kids preferred pretzels to chocolate. Can you imagine? This is a new generation. They, they, they'd prefer, like, like Snyder's pretzels to having, like, Almond Joy. But, hey, you know, this, this, is the ne- this is now Gen Alpha. They're going from Z to back to A, so Gen Alpha is the next generation. And I suppose they can just go through the, the Greek alphabet from now on, not worrying about boomers, greatest generation, Gen X. Gen Y, Millennials, Gen Z. They're just going to, well, listen, I don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> they can do what they want as time goes on. I'm Generation X, though, of course, as you know. The greatest generation of all time, Gen X. Anyway, um, yeah, and we, uh, <coughs> so, yeah, we sat outside here, and it was, there was a lot of trick-or-treaters, and, you know, we we had so yeah we eventually mixed in the candy with his pretzels and a lot of people came. At one point, this sort of uh, this this uh, SUV full of uh, older teenagers pulled up and like you got candy and they came out not dressed in any costume. The one guy had an orange hoodie on. He's like I'm a pumpkin, and everyone else was just wearing black. And they're like yeah we're the pumpkin security guards. Whatever, a little a little uh, frightening. Um, anyway, and then these kids came. I guess they were. I get, you know, they were not younger teenagers, but they were wearing uh, what I recognize immediately as Akatsuki robes from Naruto, uh, black robes with white and red clouds on them. 
So when they were walking away, I'm like, Akatsuki. And the father's like, yeah, man, you know it. I'm like, yep, of course. Akatsuki. Listen, if you don't know about Akatsuki, I don't know what to tell you. They're an organization of evil ninjas, including Itachi and uh, the shark guy and the, the immortal guy and the guy that had all those, like, wires that he would chop things up with and uh, the guy that had mouths on his hands and he actually captured Gara. He could, he could form explosive clay out of his hands. Who else was in Akatsuki? That was a good part of the Naruto. Evil ninja. Hold on, let me look it up. Let's see. Oh, Dirara, he's the guy with the uh, the clay in the mouth on his hands. Itachi, yeah. Hidan was the guy, I think, that was immortal. Sasori, oh, he was the puppet guy. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Kakazu was the wired guy. Conan, she was, uh, she had that other eye style, not uh, Sharingan or, uh, what was the one she had? I forget. Nagato, I kind of forget what he was. Obito, of course, he... He, pl- he was playing the guy that had that weird spiral mask. It was kind of silly. Kisame is the, is the shark guy. Orochimaru, he was a member? Yeah, he's like a big villain. He's back in, uh, in uh, Boruto. Zetsu, the, oh, Zetsu was the plant clone guy. Sasuke, I guess he was a member. Mara Uchiha? Yeah, I don't know. The white Zetsus. Karin? Karin was not a member, I don't think. Was she? Her and Sugetsu are also in Boruto. Anyway, let's not worry about that. It's a it's a cool look though. They all wore these. This, that was their uniform with these robes with these clouds on them. It's some good stuff, you know. Anyway, see, it's weird. This cigar kind of tastes like like the cigar store smelled. So I don't know if this has been corrupted by the cigar store it was in. If so, it adds another dimension of flavor to the cigar. It's interesting, right? Yeah. Anyway, what do we got here? Um. Oh, I had a, I had an issue with my sunglasses. You know, I was going down when I was dri- going to drive down to see my father, and my brother. I was looking for my sunglasses. I couldn't find them. I was like, "What the hell? I I, I couldn't find them anywhere." And I'm like, "Uh oh." Last time I lost my sunglasses was in uh, Greece, and it was felt like some sort of weird sacrifice to the sea gods or something. And I got to help it didn't happen again. But I, I mentioned it to my wife when I got home after all those weird adventures I had. And uh, a few minutes later, I walked back into my office and the glasses were there. I'm like, the sunglasses were there. Like, where were they? They were in the suitcase from Chattanooga that we hadn't uh, completely undone yet. So I guess I hadn't worn my sunglasses since Chattanooga, which kind of makes sense because, you know, I was sick. I kind of stayed in for a couple weeks. I had the sty in my eye and had had a really bad cold, which you can tell I still have the tail end of a cold. So I got my sunglasses back. I was very happy. <coughs> anyway, um, I you know I was thinking about the whole issue with Anthony Newley. Obviously, the same topic came up in a big way with Woody Allen, and I talked about it on the show when I watched finally watched the Woody Allen documentary, Allen v. Farrow, and uh, you know it's. Uh, he also, in his art, in his movies, he, his characters that were thinly veiled versions of himself going out with very young women. And, uh, you know, it does seem to be an obsession of a certain type of man to, when you get rich and powerful, that's all you, your main thing is to want to get young girls. And it becomes like an obsession. And, uh, you know, it's, 
even in the Steely Dan songs. Uh, I have no idea if Donald Fagan, any autobiographical stuff in there, songs like Hey 19 or things like that. But it's one of those topics where, I mean, you know, there is an age of consent in society and there's cultural norms. It's frowned upon, of course, especially if someone's using their power to sort of manipulate someone. It's immoral, perhaps, you know, can be considered unethical immoral. Is it illegal? You know, it's it's a very d- difficult topic. And obviously one there's been a lot more sensitivity to recently. But, um, yeah, I'm still sort of very confused by that movie and uh, what it did to his career. But he's a very interesting guy. And, you know, I do believe in understanding great artists including their dark sides and something that I think has been swept under the rug again. Walt Disney, the man had a great dark side, not in that kind of way, but he had so much weird stuff going on. Um, You know, but I think you do need to know the dark side. You do need to know the real history of someone. Listen, if you're a fan of anyone out there, any artist whatsoever, musician, author, filmmaker, whatever, you know, the chances are behind the scenes they're doing something pretty objectionable. I think we all realize that, you know. But we all need art. We need to be entertained, you know. So it's really hard to kind of figure out the boundaries of all that, you know. Should we hire detectives to follow these people around before we'll watch their movie? You know what I mean? Like, what should we do? But anyway, another movie that it, this reminded me of was The Wizard of Speed and Time from 1988. A guy named Mike Jitlov, who uh, was an animator and a guy that had such promise and such, uh, <coughs> you know, such talent and no hint of that other stuff either. Um, he was just a, a contrarian, let's say, um, he was trying to work in Hollywood, but he wanted to go. He wanted to work by his own rules. He found that, like all the union rules and stuff, made his work very restrictive. So he really became kind of, you know, not successful in Hollywood. So he made a movie that was autobiographical about himself, starring himself in a movie about his life, very similar to Hieronymus Merkin. In that aspect, right? There's not sex stuff in there. There's, but there's a lot of other stuff how he portrays himself as the, the creative genius who is butting up against the bureaucracies of Hollywood and its unions and its traditions to the point that uh, the guy that played the producer of the movie in the movie, right? Because, again, it's a movie about him making a movie about his life, exactly like Hieronymus Merkin. Um, the actual producer played the producer in the movie. In the movie, the guy cheated him out of a ton of money and in real life he did afterwards do that as well and um, yeah I mean he not much was heard from Mike Jitloff since and uh, very sad I do find it very sad because I think he had such a such potential but I have to mention the movie was very similar very similar indeed but it's very tragic in a way but all of it kind of points to a kind of uh, creative mind that does not want to 
play by the rules, wants to very much do things their own way. Sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. Usually some kind of compromise at some level is necessary. But, you know, people sort of being obsessed mostly with themselves because that's the person they spend the most time with, perhaps. Um, it's interesting and sad, and of course I see a lot of myself in that stuff. The self-obsession stuff, not that other stuff. But anyway, I just saw another movie the other day. Uh, Simon from Nevada mentioned it to me. This is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent that just, uh, just came out this year and is still not on the streaming services, but you can uh, get it. You have to pay to, to watch it, but I guess if you wait a few months, you'll get to watch it for free. And um, I really didn't know much about this movie, but it's basically uh, all about Nicolas Cage. It's a movie about Nicolas Cage working on making a movie <laughs> that would star Nicolas Cage. Again, that old gag. Again, right? And <clears throat> so it's Nick Cage playing what is clearly a somewhat fictionalized version of Nick Cage. But then there's a younger version of Nick Cage called Nicky that appears that's sort of in his mind and uh, criticizing him and spurring him on. You know, this sort of feels like like sort of trying to be like a, a being John Malkovich kind of thing. But that movie, I think, worked because it was so random. Whoever thinks about John Malkovich and it was so sort of like dark and weird and kind of worked in its own way. Um, this movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, also stars Pedro, Pas Pedro Pascal, who plays the Mandalorian in the Star Wars show. And he plays a... Uh, like a super rich guy in Spain that is associated with organized crime that is pays Nicolas Cage a million dollars to come to his birthday party. But with the intention of... Because uh, he wrote a script and he wants Nicolas Cage to star in his movie because he's a huge Nicolas Cage fan. So the movie is all about Nick Cage going out there and then they're working on writing a movie but then real life and the movies start to really converge. Now, I would say that this meta-conceit is uh, something that could be considered uh, clever. But it, in a way, maybe it's been overdone. Like, we sort of... And I know I fell for the the trick of, uh, you know, that meta sense, like writing myself into my stories and things and met meta stories with meta levels. And yes, it's interesting, but it it can be... To me, it can be kind of a, you know, it can be clever, it can be mind-bending, but it also can be kind of a crutch writing-wise. That is, you kind of need to build a strong structure to your script if you're going to bring that element into it. Mind-bending self-reference, a movie about a movie about a movie about a movie star who's playing himself in real life. He's playing himself on the screen in the movie. He's playing himself in a movie. And he's in the and then in the movie within the movie he's playing himself within the movie, you get the idea. I just don't think in this one in this case. So this was not really quite. It had, had elements similar to the other movies I'm talking about, but it was a little bit different. I feel that the sort of um, <coughs> the portion uh, the action portions with Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage. Pedro Pascal is playing a character. He's not playing himself. Um, 
uh, it just became very kind of muddled and mediocre, that whole side of things. Car chases and shootouts and stuff. And it almost, but it didn't really get to the point, like, it's not like he's going insane, merging reality and fiction. It's like this stuff in the story is really happening. Though it's extremely unlikely this type of stuff would happen in real life, but obviously they're in a movie, but then they're making, then in the end they make a movie out of what happened to them in the movie. Anyway, (coughs) it felt like uh, there was a much better movie in there somewhere that didn't quite get out. So I can't really quite recommend um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. A good title, though. I mean, it's... What is it? A riff on The Unbearable Lightness of Being? (laughs) What was that movie? I have no idea what that movie was. But apparently, for super fans of Nicolas Cage, which I am not a super fan of Nicolas Cage, there is apparently this whole other dimension of visual references to his other movies that a super, super fan of Nicolas Cage would, uh, would notice. Um, I understand there's like a Nick Cage phenomenon and people are obsessed with him and this and that. Isn't there a meme of him saying, you don't say? Right, something like that online. But he's, he sort of fulfills that, what I call the happy idiot archetype, someone that's kind of silly and weird and stupid but kind of very self-confident. You know, I remember seeing him in that movie, the the color out of space, and I thought he was really good in that. He just played this father, like going insane because a special color came out of fell out from space in a on a meteorite from a story written by H.P. Lovecraft. You know, the Cthulhu guy. Yeah, there's another guy that uh, everyone everyone loves Cthulhu, but uh, if you if you do a little research into the backstory of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, yeah. Quite, quite the dark side there. He was quite a racist man. There was even an H.P. Lovecraft uh, award they were giving out, but once they... I mean, it's not a secret, but once people started to like understand his history with that stuff, they, they demanded that you can't uh, have the award named that anymore. I don't know if it's at a point that you can't have any Cthulhu stuff every, anymore, that people seem to be as obsessed with Cthulhu as they are with zombies. In that sort of, you know, I always talk about how I was always kind of a, in that nerd geek category in terms of I like science fiction and fantasy. But people being obsessed with zombies and Cthulhu, that feels like fake nerds. I don't know. To me. It feels, you know, I don't know. Am I an elite nerd? I'm looking down on other nerds for being obsessed with these things. I don't know. It was that game Smash Up, the obligatory Cthulhu expansion. Yeah, I don't know. I did, I I th- I don't know if I read much of that stuff. Like, I don't really think I need to think about or worry about Cthulhu that much. But people are obsessed. Vote Cthulhu when you're tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> yes, great. Oh, talking about that, I found that uh, politics quote that I was trying to mention when I was talking about um, Russell Brand. And uh, let me see. So Russell Brand is on YouTube and now on Rumble, the new video site that doesn't ban you as easily as YouTube, apparently. And he's all trying. He's, listen, if he was just a guy commenting on stuff, I wouldn't say anything. But he's saying 
that he's a rebel and he's, he's against the powers that be and he's, a, he's anti-establishment and all this other stuff. And I just see him as rehashing the same old crap, the same stories while avoiding other topics that could be more useful in terms of really making positive change in the world. So the quote I was looking for is from Noam Chomsky from his book, The Common Good. And here is the quote. The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. So, you know, if you if you go on politics sites or whatever, everyone's like, the vaccine is great. It'll save you from COVID. No, on the other side, it's going to kill you. The vaccine will kill you. And this, all of this endless talk about the vaccine. You know, there's other things to talk about than the vaccine, but I, that's all I see on these politics sites. A narrow band of discussion, but while avoiding so much other stuff. So that's how I see... I, I, and he's an entertaining guy, Russell Brand, but I see him as being a bit phony. Again, if he just went on and talked about stuff and because and he's a funny guy, no problem. But he's saying... You know, you're part of a movement, we're doing this and that, but yet representing the same exact thing. In fact, um, a listener to the show, Anne, wrote on Facebook about it. Let me see if I can find that. <clears throat> she made a comment about it. Uh, let's see. Hold on one second. Anne writes, I agree with your take on Russell Brand. He's entertaining and witty enough, but he, he's like so many of the current Internet personalities who style themselves as rebellious iconoclasts but actually are just retreading the same old topics and encouraging us to have debates over all the wrong questions. In terms of Internet content, I find the Onsug and, related Discord and the related Discord group to be a superior place, to be a superior source of content that is actually new and thought-provoking. Generally, I have to go physically to the wild lands of Northwest or South Jersey to encounter truly innovative thinkers. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, and I, and I mean, you know, and I understand, listen, people want to be entertained, and they get involved with this politics stuff, and they watch Russell Brand, and it's fun. It's fun, engaging, it relieves boredom. What do you want? It's just, when you really get right down to it, it's not, if you really want to expend your effort to affect real change in the world, looking around you and lamenting the state of affairs in our culture, in our society, our politics, that's not the way to go. If you want to be entertained, it is a good way to go. And I listen, I was uh, sort of drawn into uh, the, the right-wing politics, the, for being Republican in the early 90s, through Bob Grant on the radio and Rush Limbaugh, and I enjoyed it. I was very entertained by it, though I naturally... Uh, realized that these positions were not ones that, as my, my, as my views on such things evolved, I realized that these were not positions that I agreed with any longer and that I felt were not in, in my best interests. You know, they're trying to sell you a, a political philosophy that is really against the better, your better interests and the better interests of all the people you know in a fun, entertaining way, you know. And there's something kind of sinister about that. I just ha- I'm sorry, but it is. It's sinister. Russell Brand is a, sin- a sinister man. And uh, Talking about politics, in a few hours I'm going over to the Board of Commissioners meeting here in Nutley, New Jersey. And with some of my neighbors, we're, you know, they have a podium and you stand up and you can speak. 
speak your mind. So I just have a few topics to speak about. It's a little nerve-wracking to think about, but it'll all be over in a few hours. And I decided to really just focus in on one or two very specific comments or questions and keep it simple and short. So... um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more... uh, My comments are more clarifications on the... uh, aspects of, of the plan that they're proposing that will lay out the parameters for a developer to create this new complex that they want to build, which is apartments and businesses and open spaces and yada, yada, you know, but it's going to be right next to my property. So, you know, I just want to clarify some of the aspects of, right, they're going to put up a fence, they're going to build, plant trees, the heck are they going to do? So anyway, they're kind of vague about it. So it's nerve-wracking, but I'll let you know next episode how it went. With that, I'd like to say thank you so much for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. Really, I really do appreciate you listening. Um, without you listening, this is all a bunch of ones and zeros on a server somewhere or on a drive somewhere. Well, you listen, you bring me back to how I was on this day, November 1st, 2022. We're here on the Onsugger radio station inside a book. That's T-H-E space O-N-S-U-G, Onsug. That is short for Overnightscape Underground. Go to Onsug.com. To hear all the latest shows, there's dozens of other hosts on the channel here. If you look on that page or in the future in the book, uh, you'll see a link to... uh, See, like right now, this is the way it works, but in the future, everything will be in the book, right? Let's not confuse matters. You can go to the Onsug Radio, which is the current archive of over 13,000 hours, over 10,000 episodes of shows like this one that you can listen to. That's one of the aspects of our of our Onsug here. We uh, preserve everything, and we have over 13,000 hours now. Um, you can tell the style of the show is a little different than other shows, a very rambling monologue with no set topics. If you're looking for set topics, each week there's a show called Overnightscape Central, Hosted by Mr. P.Q. Ribber out in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. New topic each week. And uh, the topic this week was crime. So I talked all about crime. There's a different topic each week. And there's, it, it, you never know the topic, what topic's going to be week by week. It's always a new topic that P.Q. comes up with. You can participate. Please just check out the latest episode of Overnight Escape Central at onslug.com to find out how you can send your audio or your text, and PQ will read it for you. We'd love to hear from you. I'm sure you have something to say on these topics. We hope to hear from you soon. Anyway, um, yeah, and we're very focused on people listening in the near and far future, right? The archive is, the the goal is to put it in book form, physically, in physical reality, a book that contains the digital audio files, <clears throat> so that you can play it from the book itself, which I know is a technology that is doable today. Hopefully, as technology progresses, it'll progresses. It will become more and more possible as a virtual object in the metaverse, which has not is it really has not matured yet. And there's a lot of anti-metaverse uh, or articles online, but I think it will come around. The book will also exist in the metaverse. When you have a copy of the book, you'll have all the audio in it. The same way, you can get a copy of the physical book currently has a QR code which takes you to the archive. That was the best compromise I could figure out for today. Uh, Buy a copy of the book. It's priced so low that I don't make any money off it. But this is a non-commercial project. We're not non-profit. We're non-commercial. No money changes hands. It is not that kind of thing. 
It is a non-commercial thing, right? And, uh, you know, I don't know any other projects that really are so focused on really trying to have pe- preserve the whole thing so people can listen into Far Future because as entertaining as these, are sh- as these shows are today, I have to think that as time goes on, as I love going back and looking at stuff from the past, just those interviews on The Tonight Show from the 70s and 80s, such a different time. I do think the time period we're in, we're in now will be incredibly compelling and interesting to people in the, near, the nearer and farther future. A thousand years from now, I really do think that as much as the onsec is a treasure trove now, it'll be that much greater of, of, an, of an embarrassment of riches in the, in the far future. And you know about it, unlike most people, because we're kind of obscure these days. Um, you know about it, and, and it, it, it is really a lifetime of listening pleasure. Please dig in, check out the archive, explore at your leisure. I think you're going to love it. Something else you might love is uh, my uh, the um, potpourri of uh, audio masterpieces discovered from so many different places that I put together and present to you here. It really dig another dimension in the, the other side.
Beware, the power of Varga lives to destroy Earth. But now there is a being more powerful than Varga, Vega, more machine than man, born to fight to save the human race with the goddess Luna at his side. Earthlings endowed with superhuman powers by Luna join the battle. But first, Vega must find all of the nine images of Luna in this laser fantasy. And then, Vega's battle begins. The Ultimate New Game Show. Today we'll be playing Moving Target. And right now we have Trilby Hayslip on the phone from Brooklyn, ready to see how many targets she can hit. Is that right, Trilby? Okay, you have 30 seconds to play. Just say picks to score by hitting the Moving Target. Ready? Go.
Okay, Trilby, you scored five, and that was a really good try. You scored five, and that means we'll be sending you an $11 gift certificate to Toys R Us. Uh, thank you. Now, listen, wait a minute. You can double that prize if you know the TV picks magic word of the day. Do you know what it is? No, I'll take a guess. It's time once again to play TV Picks, the ultimate new game show. Today we'll be playing Moving Target. Right now we have Steve Paul of Amityville, New York on the line, ready to see how many targets he can hit. Isn't that right, Steve? Okay, you have 30 seconds to play. Just say Picks to score by hitting the Moving Target. Ready? Go. Steve, because you scored eight or more, you win a $25 U.S. savings bond. How about that? Great. Okay, now you can double that prize if you know the TV picks magic word of the day. Do you know what it is? Cougar. That's right. It is Cougar. Congratulations. We'll be sending you a $50 U.S. savings bond. Well, that's fun to have a big winner. Don't forget to send your postcards to TV Picks, P.O. Box 1100, FDR Post Office, New York, New York, 10022. Then you'll be able to match your skill against the computer. We'll be back to play more TV Picks and have some more winners. But now it's time to return to the Marvel Men.
pages for big banana ink crayon. You'll learn to write a lot of ways. <laughs> Always gone bananas for big banana ink crayon. The colors are so bright and gay. Oh, you can learn to color, write smooth lines or fat. <laughs> Draw a banana and give it a hat. Okay, but you'll go bananas for big banana ink crayon. You'll learn to write a lot.
here in America. They will search you out. Don't let them find me. will not start a chain reaction in the water, converting it all to gas and letting all the ships on all the oceans drop down to the bottom. It will not blow out the bottom of the sea and let all the water run down the hole. It will not destroy gravity. I am not an atomic playboy, as one of my critics labeled me, exploding these bombs to satisfy my personal whim.
Radio Wave Promotions of 197 Stockwell Road, London, SW99SJ presents Radio Waves. A regularly updated bulletin of information, listings and news of free radio stations in the London area. Dial 0836 405 768. Calls are charged at 33p per minute cheat rate and 44p at all other times. Radio Waves, 0836 405 768. Here in a minute to talk to you. As you know, these broadcasts from the Lux Radio Theater are quite an event in Hollywood. 
And among our many friends here tonight, as well as the greatest stars of the silent pictures, I admired her from afar when she was doing such magnificent spectacles as Cleopatra, and I was just an extra. Today, she is the wife of one of our leading film directors. I've known her for many years as a most charming and gracious lady, and I want you to meet her now, Miss Theda Barrett. Thank you, Woody. Our Hollywood entertainment has certainly developed amazingly since I was making pictures. Yes, everything's different now. As you and I know, before pictures grew up and started to talk, we had to translate all emotion into pantomime. Oh, you may think you have trouble today, but do you remember the difficulties we had working with a split screen? We had to express jealousy, hate, love, or devotion, all in pantomime. And at the same time, keep pace as the director guided us with a one, two, three, four, just as a metronome guides a pianist. Pantomime has always been one of the greatest of arts. And may I say, Miss Vera, I've always thought that you were one of the greatest masters of that art. Oh, you're very kind, Woody. We worked awfully hard making those pictures. For instance, in making Cleopatra, we had no research department at the studio. I worked myself for months with the curator of Egyptology at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. It was great fun, though. I understand, Miss Barry, you're going to make some radio appearances. Yes, I am. Oh. And I'm also going to do some motion picture work. Oh, that's good news. I'm considering an offer now, running through scripts and ideas. Oh, I just hope everyone will be as happy about another Theodore Barrow picture as I am. The public has been very good to me in the past. And I know they'll be awfully glad to see you again. I'm sure it'll be a great thrill not only seeing you, but hearing your voice. Thanks, Miss Barrow, for joining us tonight. I'm glad I could. Good night.
fasten your seatbelts for more Night Flight with New Wave Theater. And now, live and direct from Paradise Studios in Burbank, California, All World Stage is proud to present New Wave Theater. A series of programs examining and monitoring LA's exploding new music renaissance. With your charming and delightful host, Peter Eilers, tonight's ghost host and crew, we welcome you to New Wave Theater. stage welcomes you once again to the weekly underground show new wave theater a series dedicated to the real meaning of music as an art form currently existing under the banner known as new wave and now here's your delightful host and guide the charming and witty peter ivers hi welcome once again New Wave Theater is not only a music show, but a consumer advocate program of the arts, a rehabilitation opportunity informing and monitoring the changing face of music as an art form. We're forcing new life into music and new wave music into life. New Wave Theater is fast becoming the ultimate underground alternative, and we thank you for your healthy response. It shows real hope for the future. This program upholds a realistic slant and a glimpse into what hopefully the direction television and film could take in the 80s. Our profound and sometimes frightening monologues open the door with facts and considerations that strike directly at the root of our spiritual oak. With the most vocal and visible bands on the West Coast, shot in a new way, verite style, coupled with a continuing list of cameo eccentrics who appear as ghost hosts, New Wave Theater has tried to become, is becoming, the haunting hue and cry of a new generation. Enjoy tonight's show. <laughs> 